sweet, fresh meat. <clears throat> I, I mean, a fresh episode. We asked what franchise you wanted next, and you chose A Nightmare on Elm Street. Your wish is my command. I'm going to need you, Jake and Eric. Got special work to do here, you and me. You've got the comedy and the complaints. I have the random fanboy responses. So, stick around, my piggies, and see what we dig up in the boiler room. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Scary Stuff. I'm your uh, impromptu host, Nick Leamy, tonight, and with me, as always, is Eric Dellinger. Oh, God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. And also with us is Jacob Jones Goldstein. Jungle Man Fix, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, if you haven't guessed yet, uh, tonight we are going to be uh, addressing the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Woo! Woo! Because you demanded it. This was the yeah. winner of our fan poll. We, we put it out there to you, and this is what you chose. So whatever you get, it's your fault. Could have been Halloween. <laughs> it could have been Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what I've never seen. It could have been Halloween, but nope, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. It's like one of those classics. It's one of the favorites. It's one that everybody seems to have seen and liked on one level or another. Well, part of that sentence is right. <laughs> <laughs> I will admit, this is not uh, everybody's cup of tea. It is very campy. Very campy. Uh, at least to get to the new nightmare. But, you know, it, 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 it's the 80s, man. It's what it's all about. Yeah, and I, I'm excited to talk about a lot of things with this. But, you know, one of the things that makes this exciting, obviously, what, I mean, when we put up the poll, we were basically certain this was going to win. And I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Two-thirds of us were pretty certain this was going to win. Uh, I don't think any of us were expecting Texas Chainsaw Massacre to come in second, but because it did, we're going to be doing a bonus episode somewhat related to TCM, mostly re related to Toby Hooper, but we'll be talking Yay! about that more at the end of this episode. So one of the obvious things, too, is for me, certainly, and I think for a lot of people, is when you say, like, horror icon, Freddy's the first one you think of. There, there are many, and you know, I'm sure there's some people who think Jason, Michael Myers, Pinhead, et cetera, et cetera. But I think predominantly, he's generally the first one folks think of. Uh, was certainly the one that was kind of the most omnipresent from my perspective growing up. Mm -hmm. now, I did not grow up on these movies. Uh, I have childhood memories of three and childhood memories of the TV show. And we'll address those when we get to oh, that TV show, man. But aside from that, I hadn't seen these until you've mentioned before. Nick's been running a Call of Cthulhu game for years, and we were at Nick's Place playing it, and he had this Nightmare on Elm Street DVD set, and about what, 14, 15 years ago, I said, yeah. can I borrow that? And he said, yeah, take it. And that's when I watched them all. It's a good set. Yeah. So now, unusually, I do have childhood memories of these. I saw the first three back when I was in middle school. And that you know that's unusual because you know as we've discussed on this podcast I had I didn't watch a lot of horror movies growing up I watched them in my friend Jamie Tracy's basement with his sister Kim and my brother who was hoping to be on this episode and couldn't because he sucks 
but <laughs> we watched him in that that basement, and I remember being viscerally scared of this film. And we'll we'll talk about there's there's two scenes that really did it for me, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, I I watched the first three, and one of the other ones is still the only movie I ever walked out of mm. in theaters. Oh yeah, you did mention that before. Yeah, yeah. Been we'll while, we'll talk yeah. more about that particular instance when we get to that particular film. It's not one of the first three. Yeah, I again they they scared me when I was a kid back in middle school, but I haven't seen any of them since. I've seen the first three. I saw the one I saw in theaters. I don't think I've ever seen Dream Master because that wasn't it. I've definitely never seen New Nightmare. I haven't seen the remake. So I my experience with this franchise is somewhat limited, which is wild because, again, as you mentioned, Freddy, he's not the first one that pops into my head. That would be Michael Myers when you talk about horror icons uh, because Michael Myers is still the perfect horror movie villain. But anyway, which we could have talked about if we'd picked Halloween. <laughs> but Freddy was absolutely <laughs> buckle up, folks. There's, there's seven of these after we get through this. <laughs> but he's not bitter. <laughs> Freddy is absolutely the one that crossed over into pop culture far and away more than any of them. You know, you get the hockey masks with Jason, but a lot of people don't even really know what that's connected to, or you know, tangentially to what everybody knows freddy krueger in fact i talked to my mom about these episodes because i see her a whole bunch and you know there's only so much i can talk to my 80 year old mother about so we just prattle on about things and she insists that she has seen the first one now she absolutely has not (laughs) did not happen but she insists she saw it because she recognizes the name and she recognizes freddy krueger and again this is my 80 year old mother who hates horror movies has seen she saw Dracula and Psycho when she was younger, and that was it. I mean, that was the end of the, the ball game. <laughs> hey, if you got to watch two movies, those are two that's good choices. Good, that's yeah. a good pair. Like, she would used to get upset when I'd watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer because it seemed too <laughs> gross and scary. But anyway, she insists she saw this because she remembers Freddy, and she remembers Nightmare on Elm Street. And that's how absolutely ubiquitous this was back then. Yeah, Freddy is, the in terms of the icons, he's the omnipresent one. And, and my mother did see the first one of these. And told me repeatedly growing up, Freddy Krueger gave my mother nightmares, recurring ones. Well, it's not overly surprising because he holds that level of intimidation and awe and and menace that you get from Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. But at the same time, while those are masked, kind of almost personality-less boogeymen that loom in in the dark... Freddy fucking talks to you. (laughs) He is snarky and he is malicious and he gets such glee from your demise and pain. And he preys on children. So it's, it, he hits all the right buttons while also having this kind of Shakespearean flair about him. Even, you know, just the way he presents himself and holds himself the way he's always kind of like doing things with his hands and, he is strangely charming in a way that is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> which is something that's going to come up as we get further yeah. and further into the films. Yeah, Which is why it's not surprising that he stands out so strongly among the rest. I'm going to throw this out there. There's like a 90% chance Nick and I are going to get into a fist fight over this episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Again. <laughs> I need to remind folks with what Jake just said that we're getting into this is 
the one everybody likes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's be fair here. All right. This franchise definitely has evolved over the years. Okay. So everybody was very terrified. Like when I saw it when I was younger, it was scary as shit. When I rewatched it, I was like, what do you mean the body count is so low? <laughs> it's like, you know, what do you mean? Like he has maybe two lines, you know, it's like it, this first one is very much the seed for what this series becomes. Freddy evolves into a more terrifying, more snarky, more involved type of character as you go along. I don't think you really get to know him to like four Really, well, like, they talk yeah. about his backstory in three and he starts having that kind of personality, but he starts really engaging with his victims, I think, from four on. Freddie evolves. Yeah, yes. it's so you can absolutely make the case and I would probably make the case that Freddie, in terms of being a horror movie, Freddie is at his most effective in this one, possibly three. Three is my favorite. We Nick and I have a story about seeing three. So three I've actually seen aside from rewatching, you know, I'm watching these as we go through. But aside from that, I saw three the most recently because Nick and I went to a very special screening of it, which we'll talk about. But so I might reevaluate that later. But I think in context of just being a terrifying figure or being at his most effective at instilling fear, you can argue that it would this a new nightmare possibly would be the best examples of that mm. i throw this out there i my approach to this episode for us is a little bit different than how i normally approach these so normally when we when we do one of these episodes like a big, say our phantasm episode i watch the entire franchise and you know whatever ancillary stuff i'm gonna watch and try to absorb before we record with this one because for these the way we're recording these days is we're we're kind of doing them in smaller chunks because it's you know it's hard to get together for you know the eight hours that you're listening to us it's even harder to you know because for every eight hours you listen we we record like 12 sorry eric <laughs> yeah me too but love you <laughs> but in this one i decided that i was going to take it on a one-to-one -one basis so the only one i've watched is the first one i've seen the second and the third one as i mentioned but not since middle school and as we you can glean from me talking about my 80 year old mother i'm old so it's been a while so I'm trying to take them on the basis as they came out so I can kind of see as they evolve, but also approaching them in a little bit different than I normally do. So the only one I've watched is this one for this segment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so when we talk about how Freddy evolves, while I, I know that, I don't really recall how. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think that's going to be a good approach to actually okay. see that in action as we go through. But to what Nick mentioned was when you said, you know, this has such a low kill count and you know, that Freddie barely talks is I, I had a similar reaction to that because, you know, in my mind, because he is, he's the star of the show in this franchise, much more than like Michael Myers is the star of Halloween, where he's, you would arguably say that's the, the people around him because he doesn't have a personality in Halloween. He's like the force of nature while everyone's right. dealing with him. Right. You know, and I, I haven't seen checks Chainsaw massacre, but that's certainly the case in, um, Nightmare, not Nightmare, sorry. Friday the 13th Nightmare on 13th well. Street. <laughs> but, but this one is different, again, because Freddy has such Texas a personality. Texas Halloween on Chainsaw Street. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Freddy's personality is only vaguely on display in this film. And, and what is on display is, you mentioned camp. It's very campy to the point 
this movie is kind of stupid. <laughs> now, that's not to say it's not enjoyable. I enjoyed rewatching this. Like, it was fun to see this film again. But I remember this film as terrifying. Yes. And dark and very serious. And this movie is not terrifying, dark, or serious. And now, again, some of this is the evolution in what we've watched and the evolution of how we approach horror movies and the fact that we run a fucking horror podcast. We watch a lot of horror movies, <laughs> you know, and the 80s stuff has a higher bar to clear to scare us now because, like, you watch this and you put it against some, you know, The Night House. Not similar films, but The Night House I found terrifying. And then I watched this not too long after and it's like, yep, uh-huh. And so it's it's a different perspective. Um, th- I think this is worth watching. I think it's it's a, a nostalgia piece to a degree. But there it is. I don't yeah. think it's a good movie. Oh, I, I yeah, I threw that one out for Eric because he, he <laughs> hates it. <laughs> hates it when I talk about stuff as you only like it through the lens of nostalgia. Yep. And I do it to my brother well, to piss him off too. Yeah, it's great. Oh, the best part's when you tell him I'm nostalgic for stuff I didn't see growing up. That's <laughs> what I really love. Because to I, that end, uh, so here's my my. Eric's already mad at me. Nick's wants to punch me. This is gonna be a great fucking episode. <laughs> so buckle up. I knew this was coming. No, I'm not saying that that you like it. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's yeah, nostalgic. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because here's my counterpoint <laughs> to, to what you just said. Again, I didn't see this growing up. I had the illusion of, you know, Freddy Krueger being terrifying from other things later in the series. And again, my mother always told me, oh, Freddy Krueger gave me nightmares. So in the back of my head, Nightmare One had a stigma about it, about it being fucking terrifying. I never saw it as a kid. Didn't see it until I borrowed Nick's box set. When I borrowed Nick's box set, I saw it. Yeah, you know what? It's pretty good. You know, it's a fun franchise. That first one's actually pretty good. And, you know, I see why it has the reputation that it has. And, you know, there's fun things to talk about. And then going back to it, like, 14, 15 years later, watching this now, my response to it now is, what, was I terrified watching it? No. But I think it is, in a lot of ways, shockingly effective and really interesting in a lot of respects in trying, and I can see why it was particularly terrifying at the time. And my response to watching it is, I don't think this is, you know, stone cold flawless masterpiece, but I seeing it this time is like, yeah, I think this is deserving of the reputation it has. Uh, and there's a lot I really like about it, um, which we'll get into in a second as far as why I took to it so strongly. But I feel that this is a movie that benefits greatly by seeing it younger. I think watching this movie no later than your 20s for the first time you're going to get more out of it i would have been 12 or 13 when i saw it i think 12 right okay and it was terrifying for you then right and eric was in his 20s and he enjoyed it i think you know when you're you're not overly saturated with monster makeup when you're not overly saturated with kill counts and like how many dead bodies can we cram into a movie like when you're still kind of starting off into the genre it has a much stronger effect, a much stronger hit on you. I mean, the Freddy Krueger makeup is pretty terrifying, but at the same time, it's still a guy. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, when you've seen countless creature features, it starts to lose a little bit of the glamour, a little bit of the strength behind it. But as a younger viewer, I think it hits a lot harder. And on top of that, I think there were certain parts of this film that stick with you. 
like for example tina and glenn's deaths i think were iconic and incredibly well done i i really enjoyed both of those and we'll get into them a little bit more deeper uh, shortly but i think both of those if you focus on those two scenes have maybe the biggest impact for me a lot of this film is just following nancy around and dealing with you know trying to live in her uh level of concern and fear and anxiety and maybe my biggest complaint about this film is that you don't get into the story of what he is soon enough it's all kind of like an exposition dump at one point by the mom but it would have been nice to have that kind of evolve more throughout the film and like have that like come with you so you're growing with it and the dread grows with it whereas instead it's just like Nancy, ah, Nancy, ah, Nancy. (laughs) I think it's kind of interesting that you have a a final girl horror heroine who spends the entire time in a sweater. I I don't even mean that sexist. Think about all the other, like, you know, even in the 80s, all of the the way, you know, the horror heroines were dressed up, the scream queens, you know. Tank tops, bikinis. Tank tops, bikinis. She spends the entire time in a sweater. It's nice. Yeah, They don't really sexualize her almost at all in this one scene they go out of their way to make her the the, yeah one scene one scene yeah but they go out of their way to make her the girl next door yeah and wes craven does go out of his way to give her a semblance of agency and a semblance of of trying to she's decidedly proactive at several points in the film oh yeah and and that's specifically because of a movie we just talked about in our previous not our mini episode but our previous big episode which was swamp thing which was his daughter saw swamp thing and there's a scene of in that where adrian barbeau is running and takes like four steps and immediately falls down. And Craven's daughter was frustrated and said, dad, girls don't just fall down every four steps. <laughs> no, that's Joel Embiid. You're thinking of <laughs> that bad at the game tonight, huh? Oh man. Every time really? he goes down, you want to, you want to talk about true horror, become a Sixers fan and watch Joel Embiid fall after dunking. <laughs> ain't shit scarier than that. We're ever going to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> But so Craven took that to heart and he said, all right, well, I'm going to have, you know, a protagonist in this, you know, who has more agency. So that's something he he very much kept in mind. And it works. Which is great. But he also has the line, Jungle Man fixed Jane in it. So, you know, yeah, they it, can't it balances winners, out. <laughs> the 80s were a terrible time. Sorry, I'm totally fixated on that fucking line. I just, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I don't think, I, I vaguely recall that being like the Tarzan references being more of a thing like back then. Like, wasn't that around the time Greystoke came out or Sounds something right. like that? You yeah. Know, the, the Chris Lambert. Yeah, I think Greystoke was like 86. So yeah, it was a bit around then. Yeah. 84. 84. But yeah, it's, it, it, it's kind of wincy. A lot of the dialogue is, is pretty not stellar. No. And, and I will say, I uh, I did read the script for this uh, and w- which was exciting. Cause I mentioned in our comic episode, I read the Swamp Thing script and I mentioned there that, I really enjoy reading Wes Craven's screenplays because for someone, he's very, he has a good sense of humor, but he's very soft-spoken in interviews, but his scripts are very effusive. They're very fun to read. The way he describes the action beats are a lot of fun. There's not a ton missing from this, but there are bits and pieces we'll get into as we go. But like to Nick's point about wanting like more about Kruger as he goes through, there's not a lot. But there are little bits where they like allude to the the stuff the parents did. There's one particular anecdote with Marge, Nancy's mother, about which she elaborates on the mob going after Kruger flashback. So, so which we'll I'll mention that bit. The main thing I took away from reading the script that I thought was interesting was 
so Freddy Krueger talking about him being, you know, such a predominant horror figure. Everybody knows the red and green sweater. Yep. And Craven's talked about in interviews that, oh, I did that because, you know, those are the two colors that the human eye has most difficulty perceiving when they're put next to each other. Really? And in the script, it's red and yellow. Yeah. It was originally red and yellow, but they switched it to red and green. It was originally red and yellow, which I had somehow missed until I was reading it. And it is repeatedly red and yellow. And, and it's a recurring thing a little bit more where it's a little more subtle as about whether or not there's a Kruger influence. Like in the scene where uh, before Rod shows up for the sleepover, when everyone's hanging out in the living room, there's a stage direction where Glenn pulls a blanket over himself and it's a red and yellow striped blanket. So a little more like red and yellow touches. There's red and yellow lighting at points where it's like, is it Freddy? Is it not? Is it something else? So there was more of a slow build there. But mainly I was just shocked. I was, oh, wow, he had Hulk Hogan's color scheme, which is funny because nowadays Kruger has a much better reputation and rightly so. (laughs) Kruger don't want to be associated with that motherfucker. Although I would love to see Freddy Kruger doing the Hulk Hogan Gawker trial, you know, testimony that he gives, you know. Whoa, you gotta see me. I mean, Fred Krueger's knives are only four inches long, but Nightmare Freddy's knives are eight inches long. <laughs> I hope somebody gets that. what that's a reference to. <laughs> oh, didn't, God. Didn't you, you talk about that? Didn't, like, L.A. or some city just try to declare a Fred Krueger day? I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm yeah. almost certain I, I read about this, and then, you know, people were complaining because, like, he kills children. And, you know, that's a very legitimate complaint, of course, except that <laughs> yeah. it's fiction, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the most obvious trigger warning ever to put this up front, even though <laughs> everyone has seen this, but just because we would give a warning for every other franchise, needless to say, child endangerment is going to be discussed in this, as well as uh, probably be references to sexual assault, because that was at times going to be an element of Freddy's character. As we go through, get to the remake, it's going to be. They took the assault. Decidedly out. Central. Yeah, they, they yes. took the assault and just made him just a murderer. That that thing I'm talking about, Freddy Krueger Day, that was in 1991 that L.A. tried to do that and people went nuts about it. Okay. I don't know why I thought that was recent or how I came across that in my research for this. And that's going to make my brain itch, but... It could have been the... Well, it's, we're in 2021, so it could have been like the 30th anniversary of that. You saw an uh, yeah, article about it? I don't know. Oh, I know why I came across it. Never mind. We'll get to that later. It had to do with <laughs> research on something else. Oh, that's right. You've got an eBay surprise for us. It's not related to that, but that we do have. We we have a giveaway we'll be doing that we're going to announce in this episode that you'll have to listen to this episode to, uh, well, frankly, understand. Yeah, but on that note, even though they, they took, so originally, as originally conceived, Freddy Krueger was going to be a, a child predator. It was changed before filming, and in the script I read, he's very specifically a child killer. But the reason I mention it is, it is striking watching the movie now, the psychosexual elements of Freddy. Like, his main harbinger in this movie, repeatedly, is his breathing. Yeah is just that it, it's the first thing you hear of him is before he's even you know transformed into nightmare freddy when you're getting the flashback at the very opening is this incessant heavy breathing the wiggling tongue the very nature of his character as a horror being is voyeurism you know when nancy asks him who are you you know he bears his chest to her and and cuts himself and, and it's to do a gross out bit you know with the maggots and stuff coming out as he slashes himself but it's decided, you know, just big bare chest close up. So there is very consciously this sexually, you know, unnerving element to Freddy. 
so ab- about that, and I and I have a theory on that. Um, this might be a little triggery. I don't know. This is from being a child in the '80s. You know, growing up in the '80s and going to all the the special, you know, assemblies to talk about this stuff, and you know, the after school specials and everything. You were very much given an idea that child predators were everywhere, every corner, every van, but also that they were like Freddy. They were crazy, slovenly, you know, monsters, guys that were very easy to spot, you know, dirty t-shirt aqualung, basically. Mm -hmm. And we know now that that's absolutely not the case in terms, well, certainly there's some of that, but that's not the case largely in, in how those problems actually exist. But back then, that was very much the image that we all had of that, and it was given to it. It was reinforced that this is what to be out, you know, on the lookout for the guy drooling on the corner. And I think Freddy, to some degree, Wes Craven tapped into that and made him something of an avatar for it. He he fictionalized that particular panic that so many people had in the seventies and eighties. I'm sure, but my experience of it was mostly in the eighties. Absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely part of it, and related to that part of the reason I was so struck by the film on the rewatch, and this is in light of, like we mentioned, so we, we've covered a couple of Craven films on this podcast. You know, we've covered people under the stairs and we covered swamp thing in the build up to this. Uh, you know, I tried to watch a bunch of his stuff you know, that he did before this movie, nightmare on Elm street. So you know, I'd already seen last house on the left. We'd already seen swamp thing. So yep. I watched, yep. The Hills Have Eyes. I watched yep. Deadly Blessing. Uh, you know, the, which we talk about a little bit on our bonus episode. Did you watch for, the porn? So I was about to say. So <laughs> I, I did not watch the Fireworks Woman, but I, I'm probably going to have to, so I can hit 100 percent on my Wes Craven Letterbox profile because it's on there. But the best part is, if you look at Wes Craven's Letterbox profile, the poster for Fireworks Woman is just a mosaic effect. <laughs> the whole poster's blurred, so it's just this series of squares. I was like, the hell is this? And I mouse over it and it was Fireworks Woman. Ah, that's amazing. And then I also watched Invitation to Hell, which, man, if we had more time, Jer would have so much fun talking about that with fucking Susan Lucci leading up a a demonic, you know, country club. And oh, my God, it's a hoot. We may, we may have to do a bonus episode later because yeah, he would be all over that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe we will fit it in and try fit in somehow because yeah, we'll it do, is. We'll, we'll do special purely nostalgia '80s episodes of uh, scary stuff. And it's <laughs> it goes in some fast. It, it, it's legitimately entertaining to watch. Not good, but entertaining. But in watching all of those, what struck me about Elm Street was, and this is painting with a broad brush, a little bit, but is how much of a reaction this movie is for Craven's childhood. And a lot of me saying where he's putting his childhood in this movie, a lot of that he said directly, which is that you know, Fred Krueger was the name of, or at least Freddy was the name of a childhood bully, you know, who's yep. to rough him up. And the, the image of Freddy is based on you know, a creepy drunk who we saw who you know stood on the street and was staring up at him yep. and he ducked out of sight and, and went back up and the dude was still there and very clearly taking delight in scaring this child. So a lot of that stuff's very obvious, but looking at his filmography, when you take into account Craven's upbringing, you know, his father died of alcoholism when he was young. He was brought up, as we've mentioned before, in a staunchly, staunchly Baptist household. 
where the only movies he was allowed to watch were Disney movies, and even those were iffy. And then you look at his filmography, and what it feels like is he starts at Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes feel like somebody rebelling against their upbringing. Yep. Someone who comes from a, you know, a very restricted upbringing and not lashing out, but basically, I'm going to make the most obscene shit. You know, Fireworks Woman falls into that as well. Because Last House and Hills Have Eyes have, even today, such a reputation for being so coarse and repulsive and difficult to watch. So that feels very much like kind of pushing against your upbringing. This movie feels like Craven confronting his upbringing. Yes. Because the religious iconography is utterly omnipresent. It is everywhere. And utterly useless. Yes, very decidedly useless. That's like they keep the, what is the five, six, grab your crucifix. Why? Doesn't do shit. Doesn't do anything. No. no. Not damn but that's, that, that is the point. It's, it's very much the futility of religion, the, the notion of the sins of the parents. And so much of this is rooted in trauma. Mm-hmm. That yeah, it, it's it really feels it's an obvious thing to say if you want to tap in and make something scary, tap into what scares you, is as generic as it gets, but it's it's accurate, and th- this movie does feel that for for all it is cheesy and some parts don't hold up, it also feels just immensely personal in a lot of respect, and, and particularly when you're watching again him doing Swamp Thing and you know this Invitation to Hell movie and whatnot, and which are not terrible nope. but swamp like we said but the swamp swamp thing isn't a bad movie but it's it's a pretty stagnant movie and a lot of that is he had a well, it takes of place in a swamp it. i mean you know yeah exactly yeah he's just trying to be you know fits the setting but i mean he had difficulties and whatnot but there is an energy to this that is utterly unique to anything that comes before it Absolutely. like even his stuff that is more rebellious you know he'll have eyes and Last House on the Left and all that stuff. Maybe not Fireworks Woman. I can't say on that one yet. But this feels so different to those. And this movie feels charged in a way that those don't. And it's really fascinating. Gives new the new way to look at the line later on when, when Freddy refers. He says, this is God talking exactly. to his, his hand. Mm-hmm. Well, not his hand. but It's funny you mention it. Hills Have Eyes, because Sam Raimi has been quoted as saying that Hills Have Eyes was like one of the most terrifying things he had ever seen. And as such, when he filmed Evil Dead, he did an homage to it by putting the poster up uh, in the basement. Although that poster is damaged, as if to imply this movie scarier than Hills Have Eyes. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, Wes responded well to that as Evil Dead's actually playing in this movie yep. in the background <laughs> yeah i completely little, little forgot back and forth. That. so i was like yeah. holy shit because i completely forgot time wise evil dead was before this it was like, no yep. shit i really loved you know we, we keep talking about freddy's appeal and his look and and like what was terrifying about him i really loved what uh, robert england brought to the role i liked how he was inspired by just like the weight of the glove even inspired him. Like he put it on, he's like, this is heavy and just wants to hang by my side. And so he kind of got into this gunslinger slouch approach. He always has this one shoulder down low, you know, just the weight of the glove pulling him down. And he also was inspired for his movements from the, the movie Nosferatu. You know, just kind of mm. like lots of arm movements and, and expression. And you can see it. You can see he's the nice thing about England is he didn't want to just be the guy who's moving a makeup face around 
and doing stuff. He wanted to imbue the character with some essence. And it really, I think it really comes through. What's what makes him interesting in a lot of ways is in casting Robert Englund, you know, you don't cast Robert Englund for his physique. No, 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 no. You know, he's not tall. You don't cast him for the silhouette that he casts. He's not massive. He's not bulky. You know, he's not jacked. So it's purely for his his expressiveness and the performance that he can bring to it. And apparently his exceedingly long arms. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Big wingspan on Robert England. I hated that scene. <laughs> That's the first time you see him in full. Yeah, I know. And it's like the worst part of the film for it's, me. It's, it's gawky just as hell. so goddamn hokey. I love the concept. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's but one it's of those, executed. The, the concept of it overrides the <laughs> shakiness of the execution. They uh. even say on the Never Sleep Again documentary, and not, the, not the, the main one. So there's the Never Sleep Again documentary, which covers the whole franchise, which is terrific. But on the Blu-ray box set of the movie, so on the first film, there's a mini documentary called Never Sleep Again, which basically talks to all the same people and covers a lot of the same ground, but has bits where they talk about that arm scene. And it's like, yeah, hey, we just had fishing poles on roofs yep. just going, yep. just moving the arms around. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like it too. Yep. Yeah, it's so... Concept overrides execution for that a bit, but it's still like, man, I wish that looked better. Yeah, because it is a great idea. But it's like one of those maybe they shouldn't make a Fantastic Four movie kind of moments. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Corman would not be deterred in 1993, though. Oh, whenever that's that true. was, that's true. But on, on that note, what I'll say for that documentary on the Blu-ray, the mini one called Never Sleep Again. If you can, and if you're an Elm Street fan and you haven't seen it, give it a watch. The the big one's great. For the one on the Blu-ray, you're not going to get a lot that isn't covered by the, the main documentary. But what you do get is there's a lot of behind the scenes footage of, mm. you know, folks milling about in between takes and, you know, how they did the effects and like, getting primed for stuff. So there's a lot of like before they call action stuff, particularly there's one shot of Robert England during the climax drops outside the house and he's on top of, you know, the big stack of foliage and he's trying to stand up menacingly and he can't get his footing. So it's just Robert England going, ah, whoa, whoa, <laughs> and finally he just tilts over. And, and a quick shout out, if you're a fan of Robert England, a quick shout out to Danny Lore, who came on our podcast and we had a wonderful time talking about Blade back in episode 18. Danny recommended a show to us and has recommended it in a recent horror chat that they had with uh, writer Cassandra Call. There's a show on, I think it's called Travel TV, Travel Channel, True TV. I keep wanting to say True TV, but I think it's the Travel Channel. It's a show called True Terror, and it's hosted by Robert Englund, and it's historical reenactments of weird supernatural shit from the Old West, you know, America and American history. And it's not high production value. It is, I think, a great put it on in the background kind of horror show. But England narrates the whole thing. So it's all him doing this very dramatic. It's everything. So if you like him, it's fun. Hmm. It is worth noting that this movie saved New Line Cinema. <laughs> Which was only like, what, two movies in at this point? It was like Alone in the Dark and one other thing. <laughs> yeah. And, a, but... and and distributing a shitload of the movie Reefer Madness out of Bob Shea's trunk. But yeah, it's basically it. They were distributing all their films out of the back of their trunk to like the local theaters. And they finally got a hold of this and they gave it a shot. And it 100%, the success of this film saved them from bankruptcy. Uh, they, they often referred to New Line Cinema as the house that Freddie built. <laughs> so... A couple of things about my my childhood relationship to this and to Robert England. 
when I watch this again, and I'll, I'll keep bringing this up, I was very bad at horror movies, man. They scared the pants off me. Like I, that same basement with those same folks, I watched Return of the Living Dead and had nightmares about it for weeks and weeks. So yeah, so I wasn't good at horror movies. But the way I got through this one was because I knew that Freddy was played by Robert Englund. And I liked him from V. Yeah. Because he plays Willie in V, who's this Mm -hmm. very sort of innocent alien. And, you know, one of the heroes, you know, but kind of an offshoot of the hero. But we were so obsessed with V that I just would tell myself that that's who that was. And was I didn't get any nightmares from this, even though it it scared the pants off me. Nice. I think I've mentioned this before. When I was a kid, you know, if I woke up from a nightmare, I wouldn't, you know, wake up my parents or my brother or whatever. I would just lie in bed and hum the Batman theme song to myself. Oh, and that made nice. me feel better. And very this nice. was very lo- much like that. And they just thinking of him as, as Willie helped me get through these movies without, you know, shitting myself. Speaking of other movies he's been in, he's also been in Urban Legend. Yep. Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, and The Mangler. So the other reason, and then this was, uh, I, I, I had a dislike of Freddy Krueger. Based on, and I, I've been trying to remember why this was, and I still have this vague, you know, fuck that guy, feeling about him. And I've never really put together why I have that, because it, it wasn't related to the movie. And I finally figured out what it was. So when I was a kid, I used to like to make my own Halloween costumes, because I used to, you know, draw superheroes all the time, and I used to make up my own characters and this and that, you know, and, and that I really enjoyed that, you know, because I was a huge comic book nerd as a kid, and still am, really. But one of the ones I made was a character called Beowulf, who was completely a Wolverine knockoff. Nice. <laughs> and one Halloween, I made a Beowulf costume, you know, and this was like, you know, just cloth over my head for a mask. And I don't remember the, but I remember what I put together was I had two claws. Beowulf had claws like Wolverine. And I made the claws out of tinfoil and put them, you know, on a glove on both hands. And every house we went to that year, every single one, asked if I was Freddy Krueger. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was very clearly not Freddy Krueger. And there was no way they would know it. It was just some character I made up. I didn't look like anything. It was a brown and yellow costume. So I looked like Wolverine, but Wolverine wasn't well known back then. Like, you know, among the masses, this was way before those movies and, and him really becoming peak pop culture for everybody instead of just comedy. It was popular with comic fans, but, you know. Not that many people on Woodbury Avenue were reading Wolverine comics, you know, in their, you know, their late 30s or whatever. Not so much. Except the one comic geek household you went to. Shouldn't you be in Wolverine's Madripoor costume? (laughs) Where's your eye patch? So, and I remember just getting asked this over and over and over again and just getting increasingly irritated about it. It's like, don't guess or guess Wolverine. Stop saying Freddy Krueger. So, and I hadn't really thought of that in years until I was trying to figure out why I have that reaction to Freddy. And that's the only thing I can think of. It's, again, it's not fear or anything. It's mild, like, fuck this guy. And I'm I'm pretty certain that's why. Is that that one Halloween? Because I was a dumb kid who made a, a goofy costume and got bitter at people. I was going to say, it's like, you know, 98% of people thought you were Freddy Krueger, but, you know, they're the one with the problem. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying they had a problem. It's just, but I remember being very irritated by that that's as, as, as a kid. Fair. You know, as a kid, I just, I, you know, it's a costume. You don't yeah. have to say, guess what it is. You can just give me some fucking candy and shut the hell up. <laughs> you know, I, I had made a Beastmaster costume the year before that was not like the movie Beastmaster. You know, I ended up bringing my dog trick-or-treating. And more than one person said, oh, you're the Beastmaster. I don't know how, but they did. 
I just thought, you, know, you can't do a Beastmaster costume. It's like a loincloth. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but again, this was my own character. <laughs> two ferrets. You know, a loincloth and two ferrets. I've never even seen the movie. But the Beowulf, and, I, and it was the last year I ever went trick-or-treating. Aww. So I think I had to be 11 or 12. You know, it was it was that where you're pushing the limits, but you still want free candy. Yep. But I, I you know, and it, since we're talking about it and childhood memories of it, I, I will say there were two scenes in this that absolutely stuck with me as a kid and just absolutely horrified me. Like, even to an adult, when I was watching this, I was slightly trepidatious about seeing those two scenes and then shouldn't have been. But, and just throwing this out there, can either of you guess what the two scenes might be? Tina's death? Nope. Really? It's going to be mine, so. That was that was by far the most traumatic for me. I will say neither of them are deaths. Uh, oh, oh, was it the uh, body bag scene? Nope. I got nothing. Just all I right, can do this so all night. Just go. Lynn Shay <laughs> making the kid read of <laughs> Julius Caesar. Lynn Shay. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize she was in this until I saw her. Well, yeah, she's the sister of the producer Bob, Bob. Shay. Yeah. Huh. You know, it's worth noting Lynn Shay uh, can be found in other such films such as Insidious, Dead End, and Ouija: Origin of Evil. Also, Critters. She has a fun role in Alone in the Dark, the New Line Cinema movie that was made before this. We'll talk more about Alone in the Dark when we get to Nightmare 2, because it shares the same director, Jack Shoulder. So anyway, the, the two scenes are the one where he pushes through the wall. That was well done. That was a good which, one. Which was almost our community connection, because they spoof it in community. <laughs> Abed pushes through the wall. But it's not going to be. We were not. The community connection is not in this particular movie. All it's right. later in the episode. But I thought about making it that one, because I like the scene in community when he does that. It's funny. And the other one is the radio in the beginning. So when he's on the call and he's got the tape and it's supposed to be the airport sounds when he's trying to trick his mom. Yeah. And then it goes into like uh, gang violence. Yeah. When I saw it as a kid, I thought it was a chainsaw and somebody screaming. Oh, wow. Okay. And I don't <laughs> I don't know why I thought this. I'll be honest. But the idea that, you know, that was like the first instance where Freddie was fucking with him. And the idea of them trying to play this and it be turning into this this scream and this awfulness really hit me. Like it really scared the shit out of me, and it, like it made me afraid to use my boombox for a little while. It, like it, nice. it really shook me. And then watching it again, it's like, wait, that's not what happens at all here. Nope, he's just recording TV or something, and it, you know, f- he's dumb about <laughs> it. Yep. And I felt like such an idiot. Because oh. <laughs> I had been scared about that scene for like 30 goddamn years. I don't know why it freaked me out to the level it did, but it absolutely freaked me out. The same thing with him pushing through the wall. And that one had to do with uh, going to my father's house on weekends. And the, the room I had, the bedroom, there the was a big empty wall right above the bed. And I would lie there looking up and it was just kind of a creepy room for whatever reason. Just waiting for you. <laughs> like I could very vividly imagine that happening there. So that that was kind of why that, but yeah, the the radio thing freaked me out, and then I realized that's not even a scare in this. That's a laugh. Nope, that's a laugh. I was a dumb kid, <laughs> and I feel like that's really evident in everything I've been talking about so far <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> Way to get scared by a boombox, Beowulf. <laughs> in the script, uh, on those two bits, the the main thing I took away that I was curious about in reading the script, one of them was like how much was the reach going to exceed the grasp in terms of the special effects because this movie was made for not a lot of money no and and so in turn like how ambitious was the script going to be beyond what they actually did and and not too much but for the wall bit specifically like it it mentions that as freddie pushes through it's the same basic effect but the wall was supposed to fracture a little bit in points 
and plaster was supposed to rain down. So when Nancy sits up, she's like brushing plaster nice. off herself. And like, what the fuck? But the other bit is for the boombox bit, when that scene begins in the script, it specifically mentions that they're listening to the the group Madness. Really? So I had House of Fun stuck in my head for like two days after reading this. One step beyond. That would have been fun. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. Before we get into the movie, I, I just want to clarify something because I said earlier that this movie is stupid. Um, it, I, I still think that. I didn't say it. I'm not talking about its effectiveness or it anything. I, I just. <laughs> no, but I, I want to justify it a little right, bit. Right, right. Sure. Yeah. In, okay. in that it's one of the problems with doing the podcast like this is when you sit down and you watch a movie a bunch in a row and you're thinking about it in a critical way, not just like its effectiveness, but what it's doing on the scene. You start to see that the logic flaws really start to jump out at you a lot. We did a, a bonus episode, hopefully you listened to, about Paranormal Activity Next of Kin. Where the first watch, fine. Second watch, like, none of this makes sense. And that this movie has some some logic problems that I had trouble reconciling. And I'm sure, you know, over the 30 years it's been out, people have come up with some creative-ass ways to cover them up. But a lot of it just simply doesn't make sense. Like, later on when Nancy's locked in her house and screaming at the cops next door help 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 and they're like yeah i love that because <laughs> like just before like her father's like hey just keep an eye on the house if anything weird happens yeah. get me immediately and she breaks the window and she's screaming help help he's like what's that I don't, I don't, like, do your fucking job and go right. get your dad <laughs> there is more stuff with nancy interacting with the cops in the script like there's the bit where she goes to see rod and she says, you know, Lieutenant Garcia to the cop at the desk. And he says, you know, you know what, Nancy, I worked on the night shift and they have this exchange. That wasn't their first exchange. Like when she comes up and name drops Lieutenant Garcia, there was another scene with them. So Nancy was interacting with the cops more. So when it got to it the finale. Sense. Yeah. Her so, dad's like the chief. Right. So when it got to the finale and she, he tells the cop, go watch my daughter. There's the cop who's on the lawn and she's screaming and he's like, ugh. And just basically like, yeah, what fucking whatever. <laughs> so there was a lot more of the police being exasperated and like, oh, this kid. But you, you lose that in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. She breaks a window and they're like, I... yeah, like I'll say up front, it, like I, this is something I, I figured was going to come up because, yeah, the movie has logic issues and the movie very knowingly is hand waving a lot of them saying, oh, it's a dream. And in a lot of cases, that's accurate where, it, yeah, it's just a dream. So it's it's very knowing of that, but there are bits and pieces in the script, just little things where it's trying to put some of the logic together a little more closely. So I'll just give a couple quick examples. You know, the bit where Nancy hears the phone ring, hangs it up, unplugs it, and it rings again. And she picks it up, and it's the "I'm your boyfriend now," and she looks down, and it's the tongue. Yep. And then she immediately runs downstairs to the door, and that's when you get the shit. It's locked bit that you're talking about so your logic would be well wait a minute you know how is freddie if if this is real she wakes up runs from the bedroom downstairs to the door but we just had freddie turn into a fucking phone in their hands which he can't do unless it's a dream there's a line there where she puts the phone and she says shit i fell asleep for a second so it acknowledges there there's a dream break there so there's more little bits like that there's another one the stuff where she runs outside in in the first place where um you know, she's trying to get to Glenn's. Originally, the sequence where she asks Glenn to follow her, which we get, we find out that whole thing's a dream, but she's going down the street. That's a recurring image. The street into that alley 
it's the same one where Tina's confronted, where we get the arms, but that appears again. There's another sequence in Nancy's climactic sequence where she goes outside and she's immediately in that same setting. Mm-hmm. So again, it's that's more of a like recurring nightmare image. And again, and it's all roads lead to the boiler room sort of thing. Like in the finished film, she and Glenn just kind of run to the police station. You know, when she she wakes up and she's like, oh shit, and they go to the police station. In that, she sees this abandoned building, opens the door to it, and she's in front of the police station. She's like, oh shit, how'd I get here? And then she sees the bit. So little bits and pieces. And and so, yeah, the movie just kind of hand waves those away as, you know, eh, it's a dream. And sometimes I notice some, sometimes it bugs me, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you know, I won't say like it, because again, I still enjoyed the movie. I just, I think there's enough of those problems and enough stuff that just fundamentally doesn't make sense with anything that they say or do, or just, you know, any kind of internal logic that it, it wore on me a little bit watching it. And I don't think it's a particularly smart film because of a lot of that, but it, it doesn't mean it's a bad film. When, yeah, sometimes I think that stuff is noticeable, but for me, just speaking for myself, if your concept, or in this case, franchise, is predicated on dreams, if you're weighing plot logic versus potency of imagery, I will take the latter 100% of the time. Yep. It's supposed to be visually engaging and, and twisted and surreal. And like very specifically, one of Craven's inspirations for this there were several, but one he cites is Repulsion, Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which if anyone has seen it, is a first-person descent into madness of where Catherine Deneuve is holed up in her apartment, and it's this whole surreal, you know, the bit with Freddy coming through the wall is basically taken from that film, with hands coming through the wall and reaching out for Catherine Deneuve. And the whole thing is this internal descent, what, it, what am I seeing is real, what isn't? But it's very isolated, basically first-person POV. And so this is taking that same concept and expanding it and basically taking it outside of an individual and trying to replicate it in that more generic surreal imagery. But the issue you have with that, too, is now you have an actual, like, you're not just in one person's headspace. So there's an actual, you know, multiple POVs involved. And that, like you said, it can make it a little shakier and can take you out of it more. It's like, wait, that makes no fucking sense. Well, given my long history of loving dreams in movies, uh, you know you do. <laughs> I come down a little bit on the other side of that. I think if you're gonna do stuff with dreams, I do think, fucking, I really am becoming team rules, man. Welcome. I think you have to have some kind of structure to it so that it doesn't, like, you're not constantly breaking breaking stuff that, that makes people aware that you're breaking rules. Mm-hmm. Like, if yeah. you're establishing, so you know, a lot of this has to do with her figuring out, well, I can pull him out of the dream. I'm like, well, okay. And then, you know, it, it doesn't jibe correctly with kind of how they, they talk about doing it. And I, I'm i not saying you can't do that stuff. And I, well, what you're saying is absolutely 100% valid. I'm just saying that if you're going to have some of that stuff in there and you're going to try and to any degree establish a basis in reality for your film. And this one, you know, where where you're trying to have a separation between dream and reality to a degree so that, you know, and you, even though you're blurring them a little bit. You, you do have an established reality and stuff happening there is what makes the blurred reality scary is that you have to be consistent with it because otherwise you start to lose me as a viewer because you just stop like there's just no there's no foundation for you to build on here everything is sand and if everything is sand I have a real hard time caring mm-hmm. about anything that happens on the screen I, visually it's great you know you can all you know fucking what dreams may come all they want but <laughs> if you have no foundation then it all is ephemeral and part of what makes horror movies scary for me is having some sort of firmament 
All right. Oh, yeah, and I just used the words ephemeral and, and firmament, firmament in a yeah. sentence, man. Man, I'm fucking, I'm on fire, bitches. I'm going to unhook my big metal arm that my mic is on so I can do it with the loudest mic drop ever. Could you clang? But no, yeah, yeah, I absolutely did. And I shouldn't say, you know, 100% of the thing. There, I have line in the sand moments, which is funny because you just said you're sitting on sand. You know, there there are things where it's too much for me, but but I'm generally pretty forgiving. And in this film, also part of it too is, like I said, this movie was the reach was very much exceeding its grasp in a lot of ways in in terms of ambition for what it's trying to do and being made for a nickel. And I think it, it accomplishes a shocking amount well for what they had available. And so again, that's another thing where it's like, yeah, I'm willing to do even more hand waving in in some respects unconsciously than i probably would otherwise i have to admit my two favorite parts of this film take full advantage of one gimmick they had which was the rotating room oh yeah i really loved what they did with that both times so you know first you know we're getting to like the first kill of the movie when tina is finally tracked down in her dreams by freddie and he just has her in that room uh, and he and just starts attacking her under the sheets and it had one of the niftiest little effects where she literally like like twists up and off the bed and like into midair it still works i think it's that, that whole sequence still works it's a practical effect and it is unnerving as hell just her being twisted up into like midair like oh and then she gets thrown into the wall and just starts sliding up it yeah you know and the whole time you're kind of held in rod's viewpoint you're kind of on the ground in the corner with rod watching this happen because he's been secured to the wall so as they turn the room and she just kind of crawls with it up the wall into the ceiling from his perspective it's terrifying Mm -hmm. because she's just dragged up she starts getting more and more bloody you see wounds appearing it is a very effective scene to me it might be the most terrifying of the entire film honestly oh yeah Uh, without question by, by a mile yeah Unless I'm an 11-year-old kid, in which case then it's just a boombox playing what sounds like a chainsaw. (laughs) But then the second most effective scene in the film has to be when Glenn gets his comeuppance. It's his job to stay awake. It's his job to be there for Nancy. And he falls asleep. And it's it's a bitch death. (laughs) It's it's off screen and it's quick and dirty. Just the hands come up out of the bed, grab him, and just suck him down. And that alone, a little unnerving, but, you know, not not too impressive. But then that geyser of blood just <laughs> shoots up out of the hole. You're like, oh, my God, yes! <laughs> Which apparently almost killed a bunch of people. Yes. Because they released that blood water, that, that fake blood, into the room, and it just filled the entire, quote-unquote, ceiling portion of the room because it was upside down which threw the entire weight of it off. The whole room just starts spinning. There's like a poor camera guy mounted into it, just going, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> everybody's backing up. You know, all the electrical equipment's ripping out. Like all that water on the ground is now electrified. It's a death trap waiting to happen. <laughs> it's a miracle. No one got hurt. And it's a hell of a scene. It's like the blood geyser was impressive. You know what my problem with that scene is? He falls asleep with a TV on his dick. <laughs> and like four points of noise, too. Yeah. Right. But it, the, the noise or whatever. But those TVs were heavy. <laughs> I had one just like that. And they get hot. And this guy is sitting there with this on his dick and he falls asleep. Nope. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> there is a 0% chance of that happening. Hey, all I'm going to say is teenagers can fall asleep in the middle of anything. Not when they're cooking their dick. <laughs> I'm half with you on this. It's because because I, like, I'm with you on the teen a bit. I think that scene is basically perfect. The only bit I wish was in it was the script specifies there is a segment in it that's from Tina's POV where you can see what Freddy's doing to her. But it's only from her POV, which obviously would, again, for what they had, it would have been incredibly difficult to film. Oh, you need it. No, but I think it would have been interesting the way it's written in the script, like it, where it's describing her perspective sliding around and she can see him. It's, again, the way Craven writes stuff is very effusive and, and it's like, oh, this sounds like it'd be really fun to visualize. Doesn't always turn out that way, like Swamp Thing, but <laughs> reads great. <laughs> but I'm with you on the Glenn death, but not because of that TV. It's because of the other TV that what takes me out of that scene, it's, it's scary. I'm getting pulled down, except the last thing that is that big ass TV that goes in last. Sweet. And so all you can, I can hear is, Oh, because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's as big as the hole. And it's the, like he, Glenn dips down. He's out of frame for like a solid four seconds. And then TV just whoo, and like bonk, <laughs> which reminds me the, well, real quick, the other thing I, I really like about that Glenn scene is how staggeringly awful it gets. Not for the blood. The blood's awful, but for the bit where his fucking father's downstairs and his son is leaking into the living room. Yes, yes. And I've been just, oh, God. It's, it's <laughs> such a you know, horrifying image. It's like yep. Yeah, that, that was effective. Yep. But speaking of the TV bit, it was like, so, again, I, I'm guessing you hated a lot of the plot logic on the finale, but you had to love... The prop comedy hijinks of the Home Alone team. Without he question. takes a sledgehammer to the ding ding, man. <laughs> <laughs> of course I love that. In fact, I, I think I my note was he totally gets home alone at the end. Yes, he it's not the sledgehammer that the sledgehammer part's great. Oh, but what's best for that, I, I have paused it several times because I'm laughing so hard. It's the back bump he takes after that over the, the rail of the stairs. Just, <laughs> every time it looks whoops! So my, my in succession, my watch through notes for this are no one has fallen asleep with the tube TV on their dick. She straight up home alones him. And then also she is screaming and shouting for a while before the cop wanders over. There. She's breaking <laughs> windows and screaming. And then the ending makes a whole lot of no sense. But we'll get to the ending. Well, why don't we go over the production stuff real quick? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Before we Let's do get too far in. So this uh, Nightmare on Elm Street uh, released in 1984. Written and directed by Wes Craven, who, as we discussed, did People Under the Stairs and Swamp Thing and the Scream franchise. It was edited by Rick Shane, who also worked on Pitch Black, Riddick, and The Incredible Hulk. The cinematography was by uh, Jacques Hutkin, who worked on Wishmaster, Shocker, and Galaxy of Terror. <laughs> and we mentioned episode 18, Faust. That's right. That's right. Uh, music was by Charles Bernstein, who worked on The Entity, Cujo, and April Fool's Day. Special makeup effects artist responsible for the Freddy look was David B. Miller, who also worked on Doom, Night of the Creeps, and The Mangler. Oh, he came back for Mangler. Nice. Yep. You can bring up The Mangler all you want. I'm still not going to be happy about watching it. I <laughs> <laughs> mentioned it like three times this fucking episode. Yes, yes. Yeah, folks, that bonus episode we mentioned at the opening, I mean, we'll talk about it more later, but yeah, it's half of it's The Mangler. <laughs> <laughs> Produced and distributed by New Lane Cinema, who also uh, worked on such wonders as Malignant, Seven, and Final Destination. You know, since we haven't talked, we've mentioned his name a couple of times, but we haven't shouted out stuff he was in. Rod is played by Jesu Garcia. Yep. 
who was in Gotcha. Oh, which is nice. One of my all-time favorite films. So again, if you've ever seen Gotcha, you know where I'm coming from and why you shouldn't listen to me on anything. Is he the lead in Gotcha, or it's been a while since? No, okay. he he is very much like this. He is the bohunk friend. <laughs> <laughs> He's also in Devil in the Flesh Two, Candyman, Day of the Dead, and Vampire in Brooklyn. Were you going to say Gotcha in your list before I said it? Nope. I hate you. <laughs> Though it, we Two do years need... of doing this podcast, and we're still all strangers to each other. So <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's definitely a few other people we should mention. I here. thought you loved me, Nick. <laughs> Have you never seen Gotcha? I don't think so. I have. It's been ages. You showed it to me, actually, I think. I'm certain I did. I own a shout out to my, my friend Bernard Brick, who uh, bought me a copy. Uh, if you've never seen Gotcha, man, oh, we, we, not Gotcha, not gotcha man. man, not Gotcha, not, come not, on, man, Gotcha, man, <laughs> we're gonna have no, to fix that, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll fix that we'll do tomorrow, a battle man, of the Gotcha, man, Battle of the Planets special, <laughs> Gotcha is one of those most ridiculous 80 movies that I will fight people about how good that movie is, <laughs> I'm ready to throw down right now with just random people on the street, have you seen Gotcha, that shit, pow, <laughs> so let me just uh, wrap up some of the other actors here real quick. So we have Lieutenant Thompson, who's played by John Saxon from Black Christmas, Enter the Dragon, and Tenebrae. We have Marge Thompson, who's played by uh, Ronnie Blakely mm-hmm. from A Return to Salem's Lot, Nashville, and The Baltimore Bullet. Mm-hmm. And Jake? What? Ronnie Blakely? Uh, He's not going to do it. Really? Zero <laughs> percent chance. You know how I am about this game. Well, so, look, I love the shit out of Ronnie Blakely. A, I think she's a lot of fun in this movie. B, she's in Nashville. But she was part of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review. Wait, it's that Ronnie Blakely? It's that Ronnie Blakely. Holy fuck. You just made his day. I didn't realize that was the same. That's her. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Yeah. I like this movie more now. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I never made that connection. Wow. Just blew his mind. So this movie features Ronnie Blakely of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review as an incessant gin drinker. Are you sure you didn't like this movie? (laughs) It is not too late (laughs) to change your mind. Fuck, I like it more now. Wow, I I I did not make that connection. I will say for the record, I tried to track down the gin she's drinking. I couldn't get enough good enough look at the label. But her gin drinking thing, it's ridiculous. Well, it's a testament to the traumatic element of the movie. Like, the obvious thing is that her drinking increases as the movie goes on. Yes. But the movie makes a point of showing you the very first time we see her, before any of this has sunk in, there's a gin bottle on the counter in the the morning the first time we see her. Yep. So it is very emblematic of residual trauma of what she went through and what she has been living with this whole time. But then, yeah, it gets so much worse to the point that you get the scene of her in the hallway closet and pulling it, not even going back to the room it's, in the it's hall. It's like, Blah! who the hell is she hiding gin from in the closet? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, Nancy at no there's point. There's like another bottle they cut. There's like, there's, she she pulls one out at one point. So like she moves like four books and there's a bottle of gin behind it. So they cut one. And it also sets up one of my legit favorite moments of the film. Like, lock, 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 lock. it's interesting because they they never explicitly talk about it like she obviously is getting drunker but there's also the fact that her husband john saxon he doesn't live there nope 
They're clearly divorced and living separate, but it's never discussed and it's never addressed. He's clearly there, present there for Nancy, and he's doing his best to like, you know, say what the hell's going on with you. His you hostility know, towards her is not subtle. Oh, yeah. I love yeah. Saxon's delivery when he's saying Marge. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's this interesting scenario where they're clearly divorced and they're clearly not living together. But I missed it when I was younger. Like it didn't dawn on me because they, they don't talk about it at all. It's just that thing that happened and we move on. Very telling of, of a very broken home. With no communication. Yeah. I'm still just wicked stunned that I didn't put. I'm going to go watch the, the Rolling Thunder review, the Scorsese film he put out last year. Year before? Last year. Two years ago? Whatever. Uh, have you seen now Nashville? Now I have an excuse to rewatch that. Yeah, I've seen Nashville. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> long, long time ago, but I've seen Nashville. We're but- good. Robert Altman is going to come up again before this episode is over, so <laughs> just consider that a primer. Have you have you see, watched? I know you're not neither of you the Dylan fans that I am, but have you have you watched the Scorsese? I'm Rolling about Thunder? to now that I know where it's uh, yeah. really good. Man, there's some scenes in there that it just it's I I almost borderline wept. You know, Scarlett O'Hara and and all those. Oh, fucking love it, love it. I do watch things other than a horror movie that might have come up on this, but that that is a, <laughs> I watched that twice the night it, it dropped. I just that era Bob Dylan is my favorite era Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder review. I have one of the bootlegs from it, and it's it's might be my favorite Dylan non straight album release release, but live stuff I just, I love. I could talk about that all night anyway, but we should move on because I will if you let me. <laughs> No, because I related that. Yeah, I, I think she's very good in this. I'll, I'll mention what Nick was talking about. Like I mentioned, there was a little bit more between her and Lieutenant Thompson in the script. Not much. There's a deleted scene at Rod's funeral where Nancy's still at the graveside and Thompson and Marge move to the side. And Thompson says, so here's the dialogue scenes. Lieutenant Thompson, how's Nancy doing? Marge, I don't think she slept since Tina died. Shakes her head. She's always been a delicate kid. Thompson lights her cigarette, attempting some sort of nonchalance. Lieutenant Thompson. She's tougher than you think. Any idea how she knew Rod was going to kill himself? Marge. No. All I know is this reminds me too much of ten years ago. Thompson blows a plume of smoke against the hard sky and looks away. Lieutenant Thompson. Yeah, well, let's not start digging up bodies just because we're in a cemetery. And at this point, Nancy comes in, and then from here... This is where Marge says, you know, I'm going to I'm going to get her some help. And we go to the sleep study scene, which is a scene I completely forgot existed going into the rewatch of this, which I I really enjoyed for three reasons. One, the doctor in it is, you know, the voice of Roger Rabbit. Charles Fleischer. (laughs) Yeah, Charles Fleischer. (laughs) Uh, Two is it's this nice exorcist homage. And I like that in this nightmare centric movie, there is another sequence of trying to quantify the unquantifiable. And I like that we just see it play out from the side room. I'm always a sucker for that stuff. And three, arguably the best part of the movie is the wall art behind the doctor. Oh, so let's talk about the wall wall art. art. Okay, I'm glad it's not just me. Uh, I missed it. It's not just you. So this, this, all right. Do you want to take this or because I've got some stuff on this shit? Go ahead. I, I, all I have is a bunch of exclamation points. So (laughs) you take. Okay, so my note for this is why does Dr. Charles Fleischer have a photo of a cat on a trolley in this office? This is not fucking serious ass sleep study art. And in case you're wondering what it looks like, there it is. That's perfect. The poster. (laughs) (laughs) also yes kitten in a hawaiian shirt (laughs) so i did some research on this because i had to fucking know 
That poster is called Perlorian, or Namanuko, or Don't Perlorian, our brand name. So what that is, our brand names encompass, I'm going to read this to you, encompassing images of cats by Japanese photographer Satoru Suda and various spin-off merchandise. Perlorian photographs feature real cats dressed in clothing as arranged in cat-sized dioramas, so they appear to be doing human activities such as camping, going to school, or playing in a rock band. Some of the first Perlorian images featured cats involved in juvenile delinquent behavior, such as smoking in the bathroom or being in a motorcycle gang. At the height of the 80s, Perlorian cats appeared in over 500 different pieces of merchandise. But wait, there's more. Wait, it gets cuter. Photographer Satoru Suda originally didn't like cats, but in 1979, he took four tiny kittens he'd found abandoned at a dry cleaner's shop near his home, taking care of them just as a mother cat would. After a few months, he noticed one of them, Marakichi, named after the dry cleaning business where he was found, playing with some doll clothes, and the idea for Perlorian was born. The first item was a poster of Matakichi dressed as a motorcycle gang member with a slogan, All Japan Fast Feline Federation, You Won't Lick Us. <laughs> the poster went on to sell 8 million copies and launched a craze for more items. Hundreds of items were released in a short time, including novelty, fake IDs, underwear, a handheld video game made by Bandai, and like most fads, the initial craze dissipated quickly. But Namanayo items are still being produced, and in 2010, the brand celebrated its 30th anniversary. Marketed as Perlorian in the United States, Suda's cat merchandise was popular for a time in the mid-80s, right around the time of this film, but never reached the heights in Japan. Perlorian items for the U.S. market included a series of four children's books with text by Suzanne Green and a 1983 set of trading cards by Topps. Nice. So... <laughs> listeners yeah! if you're listening to this episode yeah! and you would like a full and complete set of the 1983 trading cards by tops oh shit we have one to give away wow. you can't see it but i am holding it up with the cat on a trolley as the top card in here I'm impressed. So we have the full set of this. I was looking around after I saw this, and I thought maybe I'll get a pack, and then I found a full set of them. So we would like to give them to one lucky reader who loves cats, listens to the podcast, and let's say you just you know retweet us with a quote to you about how much you love cats once you listen to this episode. Perfect. And uh, we'll take your information, and we'll, we'll have a drawing for it, and then somebody, one lucky person, will get, and you know, some other stuff, but you will get, as we mentioned, a full complete set in great condition <laughs> of the 1983 trading card set by Tops of Perlorian cats featuring, well, a lot of Civil War iconography with these cats, which is a little <laughs> weird, so let's just throw that out there. I'm looking through this set. It's like, this is a lot of fucking Union soldier cats, man. I don't know. But it does include the trolley cat that is featured in Nightmare on Elm Street. That so if you like this. Fabulous. And you absolutely should want this because these cards are goddamn great. <laughs> Retweet us, or we'll we'll figure something. We'll we'll make it. Yeah, check our Twitter feed and, and our blog. We'll yeah, put up a post. Our blog, about and we'll yeah. put up something. But you trust me, you want to enter this and you want to win these because these are great. That is perfect. P U double R perfect. <laughs> so yeah, so that's the poster. I I looked up the shit out of that because wow. Well, speaking of stuff that you did research into outside of the movie, so question. What do you have for me on the end title song? <clears throat> Crack knuckle sound. <laughs> <laughs> this song is the only non-scored music in Wes Craven's 1984 masterpiece, A Nightmare in Elm Street, and plays during the film's end credits. Not much is known about the band, other than they were an L.A. band that split up soon after the release of the movie. 
According to message board postings, they had a handful of unreleased tracks and demos that had been in legal limbo due to disputes between the band members. As of 2009, the band had apparently mended ways and planned on releasing an album. They have not yet that I could find. Uh, I couldn't find anything beyond that. I looked up all of the band members on, and we're into that stalking shit again, on the internet, (laughs) on LinkedIn, and all these places. And I think I found one of them who's not, you know, playing music anymore on LinkedIn, but they all had kind of common names. So yeah, that song, and the fact that it's in this movie, and there's nothing about it anywhere, is wild to me. It's like the sleep study thing. I completely forgot about it to the point that I was taking notes and my head tilted up. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like, look, Dream Warriors gets all the love and Dream Warriors is amazing. We'll talk about some docking when we get to the third one. Hell yeah. But this really should get some more. Pre- I never was the kind to sleep and lie, but then I never had these kind of nights. <laughs> the fucking chorus is great. It's a nightmare. It's just a dream. It's a motherfucking nightmare. It's just a dream. <laughs> now you're arguing with semantics. It's just a dream. <laughs> motherfucker, it's a nightmare. Not motherfucker, but it's, it's, you feel the motherfucker, even if it's not so. The band is called 213, which is the area code for L.A. And the band members are Martin Kent, Steve Karshner, and Michael Schurig. And if anybody knows anything about this song or them, we we would love to know more because we obsess about this stuff. But it's so weird that this isn't a bigger thing. Yeah. I'm glad we covered that because I, we just recorded our Paranormal Activity thing, which will be out long before this. And we forgot to talk about the original song for that movie called We Shall See. And which, again, is a weird thing because, you know, Paranormal Activity doesn't have a fucking Denny's menu, but they did get an original song for this <laughs> one. And if you have to, it's, it's not a bad song. So if we're getting into the, the random ephemera bullshit that we like to get into, did anybody look up anything about the school? Didn't get into the school, no. So the school is that this, I, I got into this immediately because when I was watching, it, I was like, hold up, wait a minute, hold up, fucking alarm sounds. Because it's the school in Gross Point Blank. Ah! And when I saw it, I immediately recognized it because, again, I am an obsessive nerd who has watched Gross Point Blank. A bazillion, it's my all-time favorite movie. So popcorn, but it's <laughs> you're a handsome man. What's your name? Oh, don't don't get me started because I'll do that all night. You can't go home, but you can shop there. <laughs> we'll go all night. I'll recite the goddamn movie. <laughs> this is me breathing. <laughs> The school is John Marshall High School. It's I, I even got the address just because it popped up when I looked it up. But it's uh, it's in Silver Lake, which is a neighborhood in L.A. And Leonardo DiCaprio went there. He was a student there. Nice. It, it's well, let me read this. A regular screen star with a resume stretching back to the 50s. The two dramas of teenager angst, John Frankenheimer's 1957, The Young Stranger and Nicholas Ray's 1955 James Dean classic Rebel Without a Cause film there. Since then, it was in Pretty in Pink, Like Father, Like Son, the original Buffy movie. This was the school, Gross Point Blank, and it was the their fields were the carnival at the end of Greece. Nice. So it might be the most consistently famous filming location we had since the uh, the diner in um, that other episode where we talked about filming locations. Oh, that was in... Wow, did I blank on that the second I said it. <laughs> <laughs> you stole it. You took it from me. It was in my head. And so just, oh, my God. Now I'm blanking on what fucking episode that was. Um, well, at any rate, dear listener, yeah, it, it was the, uh, <laughs> the the episode where we talked about the diner location. This is probably oh, Stepfather, mo- Stepfather, 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 that's right. right, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, stepfather. So this high school is even more famous than that. And I, this is like the it was funny how immediately, like immediately when I they show it, I'm like, hold up, hold up, hold up. 
you know. Anyway, so those are the big ephemera bullshit I've got for this. I didn't I didn't buy anything for the, the high school to give away. <laughs> we'll, we'll throw in a copy of Gross Point Blank for you. So I do have something since we touched on the song. I do want to say real quick that I, I do generally enjoy the score in this movie by Charles Bernstein. Now, the it's something I'm really interested in discussing as we're going through these movies, because every single movie has a different composer. There's no composer who does more than one of these as we go through. So it's going to be fun listening to the, the soundscape evolve. But like everyone knows, the Nightmare on Elm Street theme premium. Bum, 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 bum. And and it really is, I mean, aside from it being, again, iconic by proxy of the movie itself at this point, it is a really effective, discordant, unnerving melody that is just yep. very complementary to the overall tone. There's some really well-scored sequences. And then there's every Freddy attack, which is effective, but the score to those sequences make it sound like Freddy Krueger is really into Devo. <laughs> because because all the attacks was very fast rhythmic sent, you know, slash them kids bow, 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 bow. <laughs> <laughs> when the problem comes along you must cut it <laughs> now pull him in the bed <laughs> blend him up spit him out <laughs> That's one of the dream things is obviously not in the script that I would have liked to have seen realize is like, what the fuck did Kruger do to Glenn? <laughs> resulted in. <laughs> so yeah, speaking of Glenn, let me just get through the uh, casting bits here. Glenn is played by Johnny Depp in his starring role, his very first role in the movies. Um, you may know him from such things as Sweeney Todd, From Hell, and Sleepy Hollow. And of course we have Nancy our main protagonist of the film played by Heather Langenkamp. You can also see in such things as Hellraiser judgment shocker and the demolitionist. <laughs> I love shocker. Yeah. I just saw her in Hellraiser judgment. <laughs> and finally we have Tina gray played by Amanda Weiss from the id fast times at Ridgemont high and better off dead. Hey, Aww. I adore that movie. It's all John Cusack all the time tonight. Yep. <laughs> It's funny, they went through a lot of people to try to choose for uh, the Johnny Depp role, and they ended up choosing him because Wes Craven's daughter thought he was, and I quote, dreamy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, oh, well, okay. To be fair, other than the sweater vest combos he wears in this, that uh, he, he is pretty dreamy. I, I, I love that, that she and he dress exactly the same yep. through most of this. The 80s were a bad time for clothes, man. <laughs> I do like how relentlessly terrible he is, too. Is as a, that fails at everything. Yeah. Grant, a lot of it is dream stuff. It's just every conceivable thing. He's like, God damn it, Glenn. The only thing worse than him in this is Tina's mom's wallpaper. <laughs> I, I love looking in the backgrounds of this movie so much for all the set designs. The kids' rooms have so much shit in them. Yep. You know, oh. it, the doctor's office, the, the cat poster, you know, shit like that. It is really, I, I watch this movie like four or five times, you know, for this episode. And every time is just picking out new stuff in the background. So props to the production designer. And, and to that note, too, props for like, they did such a good job with all the locations and what, you know, the boiler room, the, the tunnel at the opening. You know, we got that opening sequence with the, you know, the making of the glove and it, Props to them because they really did dingy the fuck out of everything for that opening. It is yep. really effective. It is incredibly atmospheric. Yeah, they, they they really hit the look and feel of what they were trying to do. 
and what I'll mention too, from a just a general design standpoint, related the, the sound in the movie is is pretty like just the sound design again of the you know the soundscape of the boiler room, the way they play with surreal sound effects. Like one that I think still works is during one of the first Freddy's moments where you think you're about to see him, but you don't, and there's the lamb bleeding mixed in with a baby crying, and so that sound effect is still unnerving. Yep, and. The one thing I'm interested in that I haven't looked into is the direction they took with Freddy's voice, because what we hear now, again, after years of this character being around and with a TV show and whatnot, everybody knows you sounds like this <laughs> and has that voice. But at the start of this movie, he's basically a non-modulated Robert England. Yep. Yeah. You know, when his first line, I know this is God. And, you know, hey, Tina, watch and cuts his fingers off. And it's basically Robert England's speaking voice. But by the time you get to the end of the movie, it, it is a modulated voice. When you get to the final scene, you know, with him confronting Ninja, no, you die. And now he's got that. What? And he has that modulation and that that well, I got whacked in the dick with a hammer my voice would That's be modulated it too <laughs> it, it was it was all the the, the crotch shot and then the back bump where he landed really fucked up his diaphragm on the end so but i'd be curious about the whether or not that was intentional in some degree to or that you know they were still feeling out what they wanted to do and just kind of ended up half doing it I have to admit that the uh, sledgehammer to his nuts and sets up the bomb in the lamp. I mean, the booby traps are impressive. <laughs> All about five minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. She's into surviving, man. She predated the uh, the survivalists and the preppers and shit. She has the tools. She has the manuals. She had that place outfitted better than what's-his-face and uh, things to do in Denver when you're dead. <laughs> well, she must get it from her mother. There, There's one other bit. I, I mentioned there was another bit in the script with her mother and when the mob goes after Freddie. So in, in the finished film, we get the bit where she takes Tina down and says, you know, there was a man named Fred Krueger. He was killing kids. We, you know, he got away on a technicality. So we, you know, we formed him mob. We hunted him down, burned that motherfucker alive. He's dead, honey. And then she pulls the glove out. There's a little bit more to that in the script. When she pulls the glove out, the reason she's got the glove is the Chronicles of Riddick principle, which is you keep what you kill because in the <laughs> script after they set the building on fire, he jumps out of that motherfucker on fire and is, is shouting to the parents like, I'm going to kill all your fucking kids. And everyone's too mortified to do anything. But Marge puts him down. It's funny you mentioned that because I have a distinct memory of that exact scene from the first Freddy's Nightmares series. So do they get to it in? Okay. They do that in the series. Like okay. he, he's, he's explicitly in flames, says I'm coming for your children. Yeah. Oh, see, I remember it from The Simpsons. Lousy smarts weather. <laughs> <laughs> There's no justice like mob justice. <laughs> I, you know what bothers me a little bit about that whole thing? Because she explicitly says he, he kills 20 kids in the neighborhood. And, you know, it's like this big, you know, they, they kept it secret. Nobody knows. It. Look, this is a pretty middle class ass white neighborhood. If some dude rolled through there and killed 20 kids, first of all, how big is the neighborhood? And did they all just have a previous kid that's dead? Hell, if he had hit five, you know, the fucking National Guard right. had been out. Yeah, he, he would, he, everybody would know who this. This would be the legend of legends in that neighborhood among the kids. Mm -hmm. Like it, I look it. Whatever you can take it, you, you don't have to get fixated on. But it was one of those things. I'm like, twenty kids in the neighborhood. Hold up, one, two. You know, it's 
And it, it just, it would be in, in any kind of reality. Obviously this doesn't take place on planet fucking earth, but in any <laughs> kind of reality, that would be like the thing. Like you, you think about like Halloween, you know, and he, you know, he killed five people and he's a legend and everybody talks about it. Every Halloween is it 20 kids. Yep. They yep. burned him alive. Cause he got off. And first of all, nobody killing 20 kids is getting off on anything <laughs> period end of story nope. oh they they framed him for evidence yeah nobody gives a shit he's not walking out of that jail come on but and it, it doesn't matter it doesn't change anything but it was another one of those things that kind of popped me out of the film a little bit when he stop and think about what actually they they say happened and the fact that the kids have never heard of fred krueger also the first time they referred him as fred and not freddie and it was like, like oh hey fred <laughs> that's not scary at all sorry fred your name ain't scary so it was just one of those things that that made me it's as a backstory yeah it's it's cool and everything but it's a little awkward if you think about it for more than five seconds i want to come back to your statements on sound eric one of the iconic bits obviously of this entire franchise and started in this one is when the claws are run across pipes mm -hmm. that screechy noise and apparently they created that by using the stick knives in the underside of a metal chair so yeah, it was just you know that's it been itching because it just it, I've been looking around for potential sound effects just in case they come up and I couldn't find the right metal screech one. Mm -hmm. So I bet I was sitting there thinking it's like well I've got a dollar store baking tray that I I used and I beat the shit out of it for the episode thirteen artwork because I needed the texture map for the chairs. Like so maybe if I ran steak knives against that and tried taping that, I like Eric. trying to do my own foley effects when I can for the pod. So Eric about to ruin a steak knife for you people listeners. You better <laughs> listen to this. They went out of their way to make the claw itself incredibly intimidating. Like, they they wanted this weapon to be something you remembered. So not only is it, like, an extension of his body, almost like an animal claw, and not only does it make these terrible noises periodically as he's stalking his victims, but they also, you'll occasionally see sparks coming from the glove when he runs it across uh, metal, mm -hmm. and that's because they hooked up a fucking car battery to it <laughs> to create the effect like, that sounds that's safe. fantastic oh made me so happy well it's interesting you say that because if he was holding a knife instead of having those claws there'd have been two of these movies maybe without question well it, yeah it's very much you probably would have gone a little bit further you know, with the makeup and the hat the the, the sweater it, it's also peculiar yeah particularly the sweater and whatnot and between the performance it probably would have gone a little bit for but no yeah the glove is far and away the prime you know image to take away like if you distill freddy down into one thing sweaters up there but Sweater, it's the glove, hat, glove. But, it, yeah. but but it's it, yeah. definitely the glove and yeah, the glove works so well. It just it, it's such an interesting design. It's such a fucked up concept. This <laughs> goddamn you know, nope. took the time to to make this thing. But also speaks to one of the things I think that makes the movie effective is we talked about Craven tapping into his childhood stuff, but it, it just taps into very primal things. You know, tapping into nightmares are a very primal thing because they you know, they're universal. And they're inescapable. And no matter if you're child or adult, a bad nightmare can still fuck up your day. It's an ever-present fear throughout your entire life. Mm -hmm. So it is a constant. And so it's just so effective in its simplicity there. And then to have your villain have you know basically talents. Yep. It just it landed on such a really perfect and striking you know convergence of fears. 
you talk about nightmares ruin your day. I had a dream the other day about the media coverage after a video surfaced of Hillary Clinton and Mitt Romney sleeping together. And that shit has ruined my week. <laughs> See? <laughs> my brain is a dark and sad place, people. <laughs> I had a nightmare a couple days ago, actually. Um, I remember very little of it. All I know is I was like in a helicopter trying to save someone from water and something was coming. Something was, was on its way and I was holding on to them and I got them out, out of the water just as whatever it was converged on us. And it was just so unnerving. It woke me up and I was all shaking. Wow. It's funny you mentioned that because the movie I watched alongside this, not for research, but it's a movie I'd been meaning to watch that I watched was the last wave by Peter Weir which is about Richard Chamberlain as a lawyer uh, in Australia. And he keeps having these dreams that are... This... Is it called To Kill a Kookaburra Bird? To Kill a Kookaburra, yeah. Uh... <laughs> but he has these dreams of like an apocalyptic tidal wave you know, destroying the world. And, and he finds out from his parents, like, you know, you had these dreams as a kid and they always came true. And so if you're looking for another dream film that's much more just kind of hallucinatory, but still eerie. Definitely check it out. It's Peter Weir. It's you know, who directed a shitload of stuff, but directed picnic and hanging rock. So it shares a lot of the ominous tonal stuff with that. It's a really terrific film, but that Sounds was, fun. that was a dream thing that was, I was like, Hey, I ended up watching a couple of dream things in terms of the media thing that Jake mentioned. The other thing that struck me about this, the media in this movie is the news report in this film where they're reporting on, tina's death in which nancy catches a bit of and they need to do this so tina can then go to school and have the vision in the body bag so they have to you know establish that image so they can hearken back to it but the byproduct of that is there is a local tv station that is showing a brutally mangled body in a bloody transparent body bag yep. at 7 a.m on a weekday <laughs> yep it's like, Damn arm falling off the cart and just had dangling by the side. What, like, oh my god! What ratings grab bullshit in the suburban <laughs> neighborhood? No wonder Marge is drinking gin neat on a Wednesday morning. It's sweet, sweet. Well, they, you know, remember twenty kids died here. Nobody really thought about it since. So this is this neighborhood's hardened. That's funny. Yeah, I, I hadn't really kind of thought about that, but yeah, that's that's pretty atrocious. It's just like you see the image of this bloody arm. Is oh my god! It's she ridiculous. goes to school after man. That is a weekday morning. Is <laughs> I was gonna watch Gigantor when it came on after this, but fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's another talking about things. I had a problem with this movie. I Rod's death is the one of the three deaths that bugged me. It's way too simplistic. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because he. Uh, He's awake for one. You know, he wakes uh, up. He's not, though. He's dreaming he's in the cell. That Maybe. But his eyes open up and it's not explicitly clear that he is not awake. The, my, my biggest problem with it is, is that the only reason to kill him that way is to make it look like he committed suicide. Right. And why would but you honestly, do that if you're after why notoriety? The, well, why the hell would you give a shit? <laughs> it's like, he's not doing this to like... You know, I need to secretly kill these kids so no one knows what I'm doing and can stop me. He lives in your goddamn nightmares. He lives off the fear and the terror and the torture he puts on these people. Like, he gives a shit if the cops figure it out. He's like, try and stop me. Good luck. <laughs> right, and that's why it bothered me. Is because why try to make this look like a suicide? Yeah, that was, no, it was not. No, it, it makes sense. Well, I think it was because Freddie very deliberately takes Nancy there to see what, he's doing when she sees yes. the window 
which then leads her to panic, which then leads her to confront her dad about it, which then leads her dad to further think, you know, she's has a, an image of things to come, but that she's you know basically, you know, nuts. And so I think it was it, it fair argument. Like would it made it been more interesting to do something more brutal or or something more? Yeah, but it's, but he's for, actively trying to screw with Nancy. Like it's yeah, not a, it's, because, he's not messing with with Rod. He's doing it the way he does to make Nancy's life harder. Right. Right. Yeah. And also on a pretext that the cops can say, oh, well, and, and you know, it's not like Glenn's death where it's like, we could rationally explain this one. <laughs> Kid kept a hot TV on his dick too long and liquefied. <laughs> That's why you don't do that shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I see what you're saying, but still it feels out of place with the rest of the film to me. Like it, it feels off compared to the other deaths. One other thing on this. Would you consider this a slasher film? Yes. I was thinking about that. Just the the generalized slasher. Most of them aren't supernatural. And most of them are, you know, knives and whatever. This is very different from most of the other big kind of slasher films. Well, this was a pivot point. Yeah. This you mean was... like Friday the 13th? Yeah. (laughs) Friday the 13th was still like, it wasn't really until Jason lives that we got like super, obviously he comes back from some crazy shit the way they kill him, but it wasn't, it it didn't lean into it as hard. It it was less overt. The first one was his damn mom. Was his mom. Now now there are slashers with supernatural orbs. um, I just watched one called a happy birthday to me. Which was a lot of fun. Not great, but it's directed by Jay Lee Thompson, who did Cape Fear and Guns of Navarone. So I was really curious about it. And it's it's fun. I want to do it at some point. But that one doesn't have a supernatural element, but has a bizarre potential sci-fi element where there is an operation of, uh, that the main character underwent on her brain that she only has vague memories of. And so there are things that had like a loosely you know supernatural element i haven't seen a shit ton of early 80s slashers so but but it wasn't non-existent but this is taking that you know motif of someone who is literally a slasher and pivoting that into something more you know explicitly supernatural and more consistently supernatural yeah it's just but there aren't many supernatural slashers overall you know and certainly up until this point there weren't you talk about being a pivot yeah I I just to to my mind I I always thought of it sort of as a monster movie not as a slasher film and I mean you know we're we're, we're quibbling genre this is you know the most masturbatory argument we could have it's just one <laughs> of those things you know I I always kind of thought about that because it always seemed very different from the other big slasher franchises to me yeah and but I think aside from the other things I mentioned and this is really rudimentary and kind of a silly point but but i think it's deliberate is i think there is a reason after we see the glove the very first thing we see after the glove is assembled and what becomes a repeating image in the movie is the glove knives just slashing through fabric that's all it is is and and that happens at a few points in the film is just slashing through fabric very deliberately playing on the slasher visuals and the slasher motif so I think that was deliberate. Yeah, it, maybe it just, like I said, it's somewhat unique in the canon. You know, until you get to like Chucky and yeah, Chucky later Friday the 13th and things like that. But I don't know. Just It was just a thought I had because I have never really thought of it purely as a slasher movie. I've always thought of it as other. I mean, there's stuff that 
like the, the ending the very first Friday the 13th with the Jason scare and then oh <laughs> he was here he was here and then oh no nothing so the ending's the only other thing I have to talk about because it's fucking terrible it's not great uh, so, I mean, I, mean I, I liked the whole Nancy turning her back on him and like taking his power and control that was that was cool that was fine I mean it was a little simplistic but you know it, it's at least not completely out of like nowhere it works doesn't make a whole lot of sense well no it sure does you know it's taking control of your of your nightmares you know it it's it, he owns the nightmares and he owns the power and he can do every once in them by taking away the fear by saying you have no control over me you know she takes ownership of the of the dream realm and banishes him away it works i'm, I'm fine with that i have very little to do with that my problem is the bob shea ending where they tack it on to the ending. Yeah. It's so damn corny. So real quick on, on what you mentioned. Yeah. It's pre-established in the film. There's the, you know, uh, Glenn has the speech about the Balinese, whatever approach to dreaming. And that, you know, you just tell yourself it's a dream and whatever, which it is movie, you know, they do that and that doesn't fucking work, but it's, it's, there's, there are bits earlier in the film that, that kind of build to the ending, but yeah, the very much the idea of taking control of your trauma, you know, mm-hmm. taking control of something and not letting, you know, trauma hold power over you which i would say works much better if they like nick mentioned if they had gone with wes craven's ending which was yes they go outside nancy all of a sudden it's bright out and marge is there they're birds singing and they have this very peculiar surreal dialogue exchange where everyone's you know like marge is suddenly sober and very bubbly you know almost dreamlike also Look at Marge's button pattern because she's wearing a suddenly it's a different outfit, like a nightgown, and it's straight up across. There's a series of yeah, buttons, oh, yeah, and it's, then, it's and absolutely then, yeah. across. So, again, talking about the crucifix iconography and its futility, you know, just being recurrent in this film. So, then Nancy was supposed to get in the car with it, you know, everyone's still alive. There's none of the Freddy sweater on the hood shit, nope. there's none of the Freddy driving the car, and it was just the car drives away and the camera pans over to the kids. That was it. And so much more of an ambiguous, is it? Is it not? What do you think? And that'd been fine. What, yeah, I think that, that works much better for the scene that immediately prefaces it with, the, you know, you have no power over me. Right. Because in this case, she has to be dreaming in this scene for any of that to, to work at all. Like she, she is not awake. Yeah, it's all a dream. Yeah, basically the last 20 minutes are all a dream. Right. Which means she's wrong about rejecting Freddy. Yep. Which means she should be dead, based on this very last scene. Remember that when we get to three. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, the ending is just, it, it defeats its own ending. I get the wanting to have the last, you know, Bob Shea insisted on the sequel tease. And, yep. and there's so many different, you know, what the ending we have is kind of a hodgepodge of different attempts to do that. The script specifies, it doesn't have the bit with Marge getting pulled through the window. But it does specify the bit where the... Which looks terrible. Which looks it's ridiculous. awful. Again, cool conceptually, but looks dumb as hell. It, it just did not hold up. That body doll going through the window, it's just like, oh, oh, it's cheap. Yeah. That's so cheap. Uh, it does specify um, that Freddy's driving the car, which is one of the bits that I, I don't think is in this. We get the bit with the flap coming down and the locks coming and everyone panics as the car drives away. And that ending is on the... The Blu-ray DVD, that shot of Freddy, you know, smiling as he drives the car away. Remember that for when we get to two. But yeah, I, I would have been much happier with what Craven intended, which is just panning over to the kids 
and and having that you know, what do you think it is folks ending because that's also just you know the kid thing is such a creepy image you know, oh, it's with, incredibly with, creepy. you know with the song but also leaves out something i had forgotten about because the movie has opens with you know the kids after we get the opening scare with tina there's the bit where we see the kids you know, doing the jumper one two three he's coming for you we get them at the end but there's something missing there's another kid at the beginning which is kickball kid there are the kids doing the jump rope but there in the <laughs> opening there is a fourth kid just holding a kickball just standing there holding a kickball what happened to kickball kid that bugged the hell out of me i want to know the mythos behind kickball kid <laughs> funny yeah i i just like you said i think the ending of this film is a disaster but you know for all it's campy for the way it screws up the ending no i still enjoy this movie you know i I think it has a lot of merit i think has some really truly scary scenes and while it may not hold up as well over the years i think it is a testament to its time yeah Sure. I, I would say it's a testament to the 80s and the, the moment it was in. I, I think it has a lot of logic problems and there's a lot of goofy shit about it. But it's, yeah, it's entertaining. I was glad to revisit it. I was glad to, to find out just how stupid I was as a kid. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, owning my own trauma here, I guess. But yeah, I was I was glad to do it. And I look forward to watching the next ones. Yeah, uh, again, this is I, I was really looking forward to this discussion and seeing where we landed on this. Because again, I, I expected to come out of this thinking basically what i thought previously which is yeah it's pretty good i see why it has the reputation it's got you know yeah yeah you know, i liked it but you know not bowled over by it but recontextualizing a bit in terms of you know knowing more about craven seeing more you know seeing more breadth of horror stuff in the intervening you know 14 15 years but also you know, just me being 14 15 years older yeah it just it really struck me differently and like I said, I, I don't think it's flawless, but I think it is still a, a shockingly powerful film. And, and like I mentioned, a shockingly personal film. It feels so uniquely energetic in Craven's filmography up to that point. And just a lot of the, the potency of the imagery that's in it. Again, it, easy to say because oh yeah it's crazy dream imagery but no a lot of it is in particular like i keep coming back to the religious iconography and, and its reputation and the constant futility of it in juxtaposition with this embodiment of you know walking trauma just i it was even more rewarding than i was expecting and i really really enjoyed it yeah and like it says screw sleep all right and that brings us into 1985's a nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge and joining us for this portion of the episode, I'd like to introduce you to my lovely wife, Hannah Duggan. Hi. Yay. Yay. Hello. Hello. I, I knew this was a movie I thought she was going to greatly enjoy of, of any other than the franchise. And so I thought it would be lovely to invite her. Yay. So glad to have you on. Why? Why was I going to enjoy it? You tell me. Because <laughs> I like queer things. Yes. <laughs> and this was queer as hell yes it was incredibly subtext and text and text and, yeah and just... <laughs> well i mean that that's an interesting point right away to talk about i think is that when you refer to this movie you talk about it as having you know gay subtext and that's just the wrong word because that it's not completely subtext. Wrong. No, it's just text. It's ju- it's, it's just, just gay. It's just a gay movie. <laughs> it's in the way like Fellini with a train going into a tunnel was subtle. Yeah. You know, it's just... 
But that's also interesting because when you watch interviews with all these folks, they're like, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. And then the writer's like, maybe I knew. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't admit it for 30 years, which we'll get into a bit later. But it really made me love Robert Russler, the guy who plays Ron Grady. Because, oh, my God. Because he was like, yeah, it was there. I knew when I read the script. <laughs> like, like, I knew in the, the audition. Only one who was like, yeah, obviously. The guy who says, and you want to sleep with me? To yep. his best friend yep. line, got that there was gay subtext in I know. <laughs> I, real quick, I love that actor so much. Uh, Robert Russler playing Ron Grady. Always been a fan of his work. He's like from Weird Science, Vamp, and sometimes they come back. Just for me, a very iconic 80s actor. Just He's always stuck in my head. In fact, he auditioned for this role on the last day of shooting at Weird Science, and Robert Downey Jr. drove him drove to the him. audition. That's yep. right. <laughs> it's all so just like overlapping each other. It's it's my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get rolling in the film, actually, so while we're on that note, uh, how about we run down the cast and then we'll do the crew stuff? Sure. Because there's something I, I very much want to see in the cast uh, <laughs> rundown we're about to do. I feel like I'm getting tested. I always feel like I'm getting tested when you do this. <laughs> you are. I'm excited. Right. I have no dog in this hunt. I just oh, like yes, you do. when Eric tests Nick. <laughs> you do. All right. Let's see how I do. Okay. I'm ready. So first off, our main protagonist is Jesse Walsh. He's played by Mark Patton, who is in other films such as Family Possessions, One Dead Dog, and Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Which I'll say, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's currently available on the Criterion Network. And it's also really, really good. I had no idea who else was in it. So it's Sandy Dennis, Cher, Kathy Bates, and it's all directed by Robert Altman. Karen Black. It's the Broadway cast, right? Yeah. Yeah. The same cast. Absolutely. I remember catching 10 minutes of it towards the back half when they're all sitting around the table and it's Karen Black. I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to come back to this movie someday. <laughs> oh, that's rough to catch because it has a depressing ass. It's a depressing ass show, but it has a really depressing ass ending. So. I've never seen it, but I, I, all the research I did for this episode made it top of my list for when I watch movies that don't involve knives and shit like we do for this <laughs> podcast all the time. Next, we have Lisa Weber, who is played by Kim Myers from Hellraiser Bloodline, Letters from a Killer, <laughs> and The Sitter. Cast apparently because she, uh, she looked like Meryl Streep. So much. So very So much. very much. It was like the first thing we noticed when we saw her, and then they mention it like twice in the commentaries. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm obviously bad at the game of remembering where I've seen people before, even but to the point where I'd go to theaters and we'd be watching a movie and Eric would occasionally lean over to me and just tell me. I didn't have to ask him. <laughs> he would just know that I'm sitting there struggling to remember where I saw this person, he'd be like, Star Wars. Oh shit! Yeah, <laughs> and I was I was struggling with that for this, and I couldn't figure out going through her IMDb why she kept clicking those memories. And then they said that in one of the things I watched, I'm like, oh yeah, it was a nice little revelation. It seriously <laughs> hadn't occurred to you the no, entire watching. Absolutely wow. not. Not until they said it that that's why I was recognizing yep. her. <laughs> I am terrible at that game. Terrible. We already discussed uh, Ron Grady is played by Robert Russler. Uh, then we have Mr. Walsh, who's played by Clue Gulliger. His second appearance on our podcast. That's right. His first time being The Return of the Living Dead. From the same year. Absolutely. He also played in Feast and The Hidden. We then have Mrs. Walsh, who's played by Hope Lang from Death Wish, Blue Velvet, ah. and Clear and Present Danger. Did I get it? Wow. No, no, no. no. Okay. Not her. Not her. <laughs> nope. 
as as a side note, and I because you're all maybe a little bit younger than me. Shut up, Eric. Um, <laughs> I just toss it out there. Whenever somebody says Mr. and Mrs. Walsh, am I the only one who immediately thinks of 90210? Oh, look at them silent faces. I am. Okay. <laughs> Very exciting. On <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, I had cool club friends who watched 90210, but I was not one of them. No. Yeah, this, I wasn't allowed to watch 90210. Th- this fell in the sibling wars. It was, it was basically, it was a show my sister liked, so I couldn't. <laughs> it, it debuted they were freshmen the same year i was a freshman in high school so it was kind of a big deal in my class and you know i'm old but i want to hear more about why hannah's parents wouldn't let her watch 90210 for being honest here there was a running rule in my house that we weren't allowed to watch anything that my parents seemed to be too stupid oh man and so 90210 and melrose place and what's the ed o'neill Married, 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 with children. Children. married with children. Wasn't allowed to watch that. Clearly, Nick, Eric, and I didn't have similar rules about watching stupid <laughs> shit. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Next up, we have Coach Schneider. Okay. Who's played by Marshall Bell, mm-hmm. who you might know from such things as Manhunter, Identity, and Total Recall. Oh, yeah, you oh. lose. I think you failed. I totally <laughs> lost. I got to download a buzzer noise. <laughs> <laughs> Dude's in a lot. I love him. But what 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 were you hoping I'd mention? He's Warden Bates in Digstown. Yes, he is. Ah, uh, that was clumsy of me. Scared me. Scare you? <laughs> I don't think I've watched that yet. Yeah, I know you haven't seen it, but Jake and I have seen it enough that you've basically seen it by proxy. <laughs> you, you have heard us quote osmosis eighty percent of that film. So. Truth, truth. That's fine. We can keep going, but okay. I, just, I, I was curious. I, if it was I have failed like you, but I will finish this job. <laughs> They're still talking to you, but... <laughs> you know, that's funny. I, I was thinking about Digstown yesterday, because that, that tops the list of movies I feel guilty watching now because they have creeps in lead roles. Yeah. Because that's got James Woods in the lead role. Oh, and it's oh like, yeah, he's yeah, terrible. That, yeah. This is, you know, and it, you can't, like, watch it around him. Nope. It's, it's no. one of those that... It just makes me so mad at James Woods for being a scumbag, because I love that film. And, you know, Same. you're ruining a Lou Gossett Jr. movie. And for that, that's like high crimes and misdemeanors. It's a sin. Also, only the first Lou Gossett Jr. movie we're going to talk about today. So, Ooh. Fascinating. I've got some dumbass notes. Just buckle up. <laughs> is the next one Enemy Mine? Or... It is not. <laughs> I love Enemy Mine! I've never seen Enemy Mine. Oh. Fix it. <laughs> Fix it. All right. So, again, we have Fred Krueger, who is played by Robert England from Urban Legend as uh, one of our past episodes. Behind the Mask, Rise of Leslie Vernon, and The Mangler. And I had to throw this in. Mr. Grady is played by Lyman Ward from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Creature, and Sleepwalkers. Ah! He's Mr. Bueller. Oh, that's funny because they mentioned the documentary that because that was the part Bob Shea, the producer, wanted. Mm -hmm. And they mentioned that they had to give it to a real actor. So that's nice that you read that off. And yeah, he actually did have cred. You know, he had a filmography. So instead, Bob (laughs) Shea plays the bartender. Yeah. When he's at the uh, the grill in the the beginning of the um, pool scene towards the end, that dude is a dead ringer for Nicholson as the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> he looks so much like him in that I kept like the first time I watched him, I'm like hold up, hold up, and I had to just kind of pause it and go back because it's this, it's the hat, of course, but it's he just looks so much like the Joker in the 1989 Batman that it you know I it almost feels like that's the design from it, but anyway. I'm sure it isn't. I don't have details on Mr. Weber, but yeah, I can see what you're saying about the way he looks. It's when he wears that hat, and it's the same hat the Joker wears in the in the museum scene. It's just like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now the production stuff. 
We'll just go through this real quick since you asked for it. Directed by Jack Shoulder, who did The Hidden, Arachnid, and Wishmaster 2. I'm surprised you left out the season one, episode 15 of Mortal Kombat Conquest, titled <laughs> The Serpent and the Ice. <laughs> and also, he did a movie we talked about on our last big episode, the comic episode. He did the TV movie of Generation X with Matt Furrer. Ah, okay. Yeah, I have no respect for this man. He just clearly had no respect for the film. I, I just... Yeah, so I'll, I'll mention this real quick. Has anyone seen Alone in the Dark, the movie he made before this? No, no. I picked it up, and it's good. It's got some problematic stuff in its perspective on mental health, but it's a solid horror film. It's pretty fun to watch. Wait, an and... 80s horror movie has a bad mental health vibe to it? Yeah, who'd have thunk about things being potentially problematic? <laughs> <Shocking>. <laughs> <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me Sleepaway Camp has one, too. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a decidedly pretty solid slasher, and it makes the... We'll talk more about Shoulders directing in this movie, but uh, I think he's been pretty upfront about his disinterest in this movie going into it before, and, and I think that very much comes through if you look at Alone in the Dark and then watch this. I'm just going to throw this out right now, up front. Is like the fact that he had to have someone else direct the pool scene because he couldn't do it without laughing just implies to me that he had no actual grit or, or, or any like to he, be he was fair, not weighted for this. Like, <laughs> the pool scene is ridiculous. So it's, are we really going to fault him for not being like the entirety of the cast and crew <laughs> thought it was stupid and made no sense. No, I agree. So, but if you're going to direct the film, like, you know, do a full buy in. That's all I'm saying. But also, they made this movie in like 45 minutes. So yes. I, yeah. I, I think given the constraints, he, well, we'll get into whether we liked it or not, but I think he did a good job based on the constraints of what he was given and, you know, the time frame. All I'm saying is, is that while he obviously knew how to make a movie and he made a movie, the fact that he couldn't do a full buy-in and had to like partial parts of it all because he couldn't take it seriously, and he had no idea what he was actually filming... <laughs> I mean, it's not entirely unheard of to pass scenes off to your AD, but fair enough. Yeah, uh, they did that on Elm Street. Well, like Sean Cunningham had to come in at the eleventh hour on on Elm Street One and shoot a bunch of shit for Wes Craven. So that's not unheard of. But yeah, I I think like Jake, I think it's impressive what he that he got this movie made in the time frame he did. But I do think True. he was thoroughly disinterested because <laughs> he even admits himself. And we'll talk more about this later. But he said, you know, I didn't want to make horror movies. His first film was, he did a dramatic short film back in the 70s, fell out of directing, got into editing, was the editor on The Burning, which I also watched in the build-up to this, and I see why that movie's got the reputation that it does as slashers, because the last third of that movie's a hoot. (laughs) But by editing that, he basically figured out ostensibly how slashers work. So he made Alone in the Dark because he understood the basic mechanics. So I think there was a lot of, uh, yeah, I guess I'll crank this out, sure, because it's it's going to make money based on the first one. So yep. maybe this will launch me into something. But Look, I will never say a bad word about the dude who accidentally made the gayest horror movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later, too. I'm not sure how much of it. I don't think it was as much of an accident as he says it. I don't think it was either, but you hear him talking about it. It's like, I it's had no the idea. The story's been sticking to over 30 years. I mean, the movie was written by David Chaskin. Mm-hmm. Who also wrote the <laughs> exactly? Who also wrote the Curse, I Madman, and Midnight's Child? And we'll have lots to say about him later. Then it was edited by Arlene Garson, 
who uh, also did uh, House of Dark Shadows, Alone in the Dark, and The Man Who Wouldn't Die. It was edited also by Bob Brady, who worked mm. on Superfly, <laughs> The Baron, and Quiet Cool. And Beat Street. And Beat Street. <laughs> Cinematography was by Christopher Tupty, who also worked on Repo Man, Critters, and The Wraith. Mm-hmm. Ah, I love The Wraith. I love The Wraith way more than I should. <laughs> I don't <laughs> It's not a great movie, but I saw the the right age. Or it was just too cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I still haven't seen it. So I saw it in class in sixth grade. Wow, that explains a lot. Substitute <laughs> teachers are the best. <laughs> it wasn't even substitute. It was just like movie day, and they showed us the Wraith. I still can't figure out how that happened. The eighties, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Cinematography was by uh, Jacques Heitken, who also worked on Faust, <laughs> Shocker, and Wishmaster. Music was by Christopher Young, who also worked on Hellraiser, Tales from the Hood, and Urban Legend. It's funny looking at uh, Christopher Young's filmography, because so I, I know his horror work after this. I mentioned before I like his stuff. I don't like his score for this movie, but so I looked at it, what his credits were before this. And it's The Dorm, The Drip Blood, The Power, Avenging Angel, Defcon 4, and Barbarian Queen. <laughs> so I was like, oh, <laughs> really rocking some of those direct-to-video fantasy movies from the 80s that I definitely saw. And again, this was produced and distributed by New Line Cinema, who again worked on such things like Malignant 7 and Final Destination. All right. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned Malignant. I was thinking about this movie in kind of a general and how there's there's a 0.0% chance this movie gets made today. And I say that because, all right, so it's the sequel to a franchise that had like a breakout, huge success. Mm-hmm. They're not going to just take a the whatever approach that they did with this one you know it's like ah let's just do some shit well that's true yeah and i'm I'm not talking about making you know like gay horror or anything i just mean that they it's so radically different from the first one Mm -hmm. while they're they're starting this franchise and the first one was such a huge hit yeah that i couldn't see it but then i got to thinking malignant could do that malignant could just make some bizarre ass weirdo nothing to do with the first movie sequel that's you know tangentially connected like this well, it's not tangentially connected. It's obviously more connected than that. But in terms of like rules and the characters and, you know, the way it works. it's, it's Go team rules. It, <laughs> Jake's a convert based on our last episode. I know. I'm so happy. Yeah, you're not going to be. Um, but Malignant, I, I could just see Malignant doing that. Like, you know, all right, I get more money. Let's do something else. See what happens. Yeah, the fucking Malignant guys in this area. Look at Malignant all over the place. Let's go. <laughs> That's the only one I could see doing something such a, a left turn with a sequel like this in a in the perspective franchise with the perspective franchise level monster to it. I don't I kind of disagree with you there only because I feel Gabriel was iconic enough that they're going to want to capitalize on that massively. Like while they might be able to get away with it, there's just no way in hell they do it. Like the next one's going to have Gabriel. Well, yeah, in it but somehow. there's no what there's no way in hell that they would make Malignant. So, you know, here we are. Fair. So it's, <laughs> That's what made me think of it. One thing I'll say in, in this movie's defense, in retrospect, one thing this movie's kind of gotten shit on over the years, like the one thing I knew about it before I saw it, I didn't know it before I saw it very much as the like derided entry in the franchise, but I knew it was like the one that basically no one talked about. That was my perspective going in. And that also that it, quote unquote, broke the rules of the rest of the franchise. And and that I think is I think it gets a little bit of a bad rap for because Elm Street one was so fast and loose with a lot of its mechanics 
that I don't yes. think anything was established enough. And I say that as a positive. Yeah, yeah, I know where you stand on it, Jake. Um, <laughs> that I don't think doing something different and going the route they did was necessarily the worst idea. And I don't. It, so I think basically, those two movies taken by themselves, it works. Yeah, it's because Dream Warriors basically you know steers it back towards Craven territory, and yes. and then everything else kind of follows the path that Dream Warriors puts the franchise back on. So I think it gets kind of a bad rep by association. So I think that's a little bit unfair. But one thing I'll say is the problem I have with the movie is I think the decisions it makes are thoroughly uninteresting. <laughs> Aside from the, you know, text subtext elements of it, like functionally how Freddie works, it's a it's a haunted house movie, basically. Is it just reduces Freddie to a ghost yep. trying to possess somebody. Yep. And when your mechanism of the whole movie is you have you have somebody who can prey on you at your most vulnerable and you're nigh unto defenseless and the crux of your second film is why well, I want to throw all that shit away and get back in the body for reasons is <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's my biggest complaint with it is that it is and I realize your argument was taking it as just the two movies by themselves nothing's truly established but looking at the franchise as a whole which I have a real hard time not doing it's very much Freddy is his own little kind of godlike figure in the dreamland and the best way to just like cut him off at the knees is to bring him into reality. Every time he's brought into reality, he just gets his ass handed to him. You know, so the fact that the crux of this movie was him trying to get into that vulnerability just really seemed to take away from it for me. At least he doesn't take a sledgehammer into Little Freddy this movie. <laughs> yeah, him spite lighting a pack of hot dogs on fire was way fucking better. <laughs> I will say this. Maybe. Well, no, it didn't make me laugh as much, but... <laughs> I will say this. There is a moment in this movie I'm arguably liked more than anything in the first one. There is a moment in this movie. What moment? You have my attention. All right. So it's it's during the sequence at Lisa's place. Rod has been murdered. Jesse goes to Lisa's and, he's, and he, he tells her you know, he's covered in blood, <laughs> literally dripping with blood as he's explaining everything to Lisa. And then he has the line, oh, God, he's coming back. Jesse transforms into Freddy and he's chasing Lisa throughout the house. Lisa bumps into him. He bites her on the ankle. She gets up, kicks him. He goes to stab her. Knives go into the floor, right? Yep. So at this point, there's a shot of Lisa where she runs to the patio door, which leads to the the area where everyone else is, you know, everyone who's out playing by the pool and whatnot. And she's trying to get the door open and everyone else is shaking the door and, and you know, doors don't open. Then she goes back. If anyone's ever been a cat owner, there's a moment <laughs> where a cat gets someplace where the cat very much knows it should not be <laughs> and starts knocking shit off and almost always makes a point of making eye contact with you. <laughs> and then once you've made eye contact, just and just knocking shit off. When she runs back, Freddie is in the hall standing up looking at her and he doesn't lunge at her. He just goes, and reaches and he just knocks shit off the shelf. There is no fucking reason for him to do it. He doesn't go after. It's just fuck these books. And then he goes after her. It's completely nonsensical. And then there's all the shit with him going outside into the pool area where he kind of kills a couple people, but mostly he just wrecks shit. And talking people around, <laughs> Freddy is far more concerned with property damage than murder in this movie. <laughs> he, he wrecks a punch bowl the same way he does that stuff. He swipes it off the table. Yeah, he does. And punch bowls are expensive. 
<laughs> hey, if it was the first time I could actually touch things again, I might go a little hog wild on the things around me too. I'm just gonna say. <laughs> but punch bowls? Maybe not the punch bowls. <laughs> so the feeling I'm getting is that nobody liked this movie. No, 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 no. I enjoyed this movie. But it is hard to think of it in terms as a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. It really is its own beast. Yeah, I, I don't dislike it. I'm pretty middle of the road on it. From an execution standpoint, I, I think it, it's pretty thoroughly uninteresting. So it's pretty much just a lot of the the thematic elements that we'll get into and Mark Patton's performance are the main things that save it for me. Agreed. I, I'll, I'll throw this out there. I liked it more than the first one. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> that's not a dig that's not a dig I, 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 swear to that. I saw this and I said Jake is going to like this more than the first one I knew it as soon as I finished rewatching well, it's got a better soundtrack right <laughs> well yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all had the one song in the first one this one's got like five yeah, yeah see Jake's already sold Ray, yeah. so. we'll talk about it but I it's alright so this this movie could be a dog just crapping on the ground as long as like you know Neil Diamond and somebody else was singing in the background the whole time. <laughs> He'd be like, "Yeah, I love it." <laughs> it could, but Neil Diamond doesn't sing in this. <laughs> no, it, it has nothing to do with the music. Although we'll, you know, I have notes about the music and music posters. But for me, it it has a dreamlike quality that runs all the way through it. <laughs> Wow. That for whatever reason, and I, I don't really have a, you know, a really good explanation for this. Don't you famously hate dream sequences? I do. <laughs> <laughs> but when the whole film feels kind of wobbly uh-huh. in between everything, I, I thought the the vibe was... <laughs> we lost Eric! We lost Eric! I don't do this stuff on purpose, folks. It no, just happens. No, 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 no. Let me fix my microphone. Give me one second here. <laughs> Where's all the standing on sand shit from the first movie? <laughs> Where's your shit? What the fuck? <laughs> it's great that you like this movie. Great that you like it. That's why! <laughs> Let me explain. <laughs> I don't well, know. Should we let you explain? It's a well-established <laughs> fact that once Jake has given up in the film, it can do anything it wants and it's okay. Yes. <laughs> I'll say, I'm okay, that's true, but it's not, 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 not interesting. <laughs> All right, so the first one, the movie is very much about having a delineation between dreams and reality. <sighs> this one, that's an undercurrent to with him wanting to get into reality. But the entire movie from Go, because it starts in a dream and it ends in a dream and the entire middle of it feels everything is just part of it is is when you talk about the production not being very good. So it just it feels like very much a collection of scenes rather than a very particularly coherent whole. If you kind of run through a lot of it. But the reaction I had to that is that everything, everything in the film has a layer of weird ephemeral gloss to it where absolutely hmm. nothing in the film feels real fascinating but it also and you doesn't enjoy feel it doesn't feel completely dreamlike so it's just right on this this weird edge that you get in like 
I don't know when you're you're reading the fucking Sandman or something, and oh, so in, you know, it's kind of like Identity. Okay, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> because again, Identity gives a very sharp delineation that tells you right in front. Oh, this is all a dream, but this is reality. Nope, not yet. Yeah, that shit was annoying. But this one never really bothers to give you the answers to anything. It's just like here's a whole bunch of shit that happens. It's fucking weird. There's dogs with people's faces, and you know, Freddy jumps out of a dude, and so it's more nebulous. So it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Absolutely. It's more nebulous, so it makes it easier for me. To, like, it just... Because, because what happens is the rules don't fucking matter at all. And that's... Let's and that me makes remove... it okay for his old man brain to process yeah, it. Yeah, well, it, it <laughs> lets me not... When you're when you're doing watching stuff like we do, where you, you're you know, trying to pick up on details and shit, it just tells me to don't bother at all <laughs> with this. So when you, when you said, the movie doesn't care, so I shouldn't... That's partly right. <laughs> Because I'm not saying it's an artistic fucking choice in this. It's just how it felt to me. So the whole thing feels vaguely dreamlike, vaguely, you know, one step in both the entire time. And it doesn't tell me I'm real. I'm in a dream. I'm real. I'm in a dream. And then, you know, kind of switch all the rules around. It just doesn't establish rules. And for me, it just made it easier to take. And, you know, I, I think this other, you know, the lead actor's performance, I think, is terrific in it. I, mm-hmm. I think he's really good. You know, and I, I like some of the, the funnier bits kind of land with me. And, you know, some of the ridiculous shit like exploding hot dogs. <laughs> I was just entertained. <laughs> Is it entry into the film? Again, I haven't watched anything past this since 1989. So I've seen the first one. And I've seen this one. So taking them as they come like that, I don't have any investment in what happens later or anything. You know, Nancy coming back or whatever happens in Dream Warriors. Because I only barely remember Dream Warriors and I've not really seen any of the other ones. So just on its own in this, it felt interesting to me. It felt fun. It, it's not a great movie. Look, I'm not saying it's great. Right. I'm just saying I enjoyed it more because it didn't try and do too much and fail. It just doesn't try at all and succeeds at not trying. So no, everything you said is is entirely valid. I mean, you think we think the, the part that's I not what that Nick's funny. face says. <laughs> the, the part that I think is funny, aside from all the stuff we mentioned, the pre- is everything you just said are reasons people gave for liking the first one more than this. <laughs> because you can make all of those arguments with the first movie. As far as it playing loose, I've seen multiple, multiple takes that all of Elm Street 1 is a dream. So That, that may be, but it doesn't yeah. feel like that to me. It, right, it right, feels right. like it's trying to tell you otherwise, where this movie just doesn't care enough to tell you one way or another. Right. And that, that makes a difference for me. No, I think that, yeah, that's interesting. It it didn't click that way for me. So for me, it feels just largely, it's probably a bad way to put it, but pedestrian, where it feels like, it, yeah. like we're under the wire, just fart out a slasher film with Freddy in it. And we'll get in. I read the script for this, so we'll get into like some of this stuff as written versus how it was executed. Um, I will say there there are elements of it that I think are effective. Yes, but it's effective, like like you said before, it's effective as a ghost story. It's very much a haunted house type story. It's not a Freddy Krueger. My my having absolutely no real connection to Freddy might be a big part of it. And they also they I think they only call him Fred in this the entire time, except for the one the thing, and that always amuses me because. It just doesn't sound scary. <laughs> so can, can I throw out like one little detail that would in a more rigorous film would bother me and didn't in this. And it, it's just stupid. So when you start with the bus, see, I, I remember that the first one took place in Ohio. And in this, almost the first thing you see is Springwood 
IND school district on the bus. And Springwood is retained for the rest of them, too, I believe. Right. But, you know, IND made me think Indiana. Is this in Indiana? And that confused me enough to that I had to look up. And I think it's probably just independent is what they're going for. Yes. But it made me think Indiana and I got confused. And then I just kind of realized watching it, every license plate in this is California. They didn't even bother to try. <laughs> every single license plate is California. Plus, it goes out, you know, so when he's driving off and clearly, you know, you're it's dream or whatever. But he drives off into the fucking Joshua Tree Desert. Yeah, Either Indiana or Ohio has Joshua Trees or mountains. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I get he's, you know, it's dream and he's on his way to fucking Beetlejuice's crib. But yeah, that kind of stuff in a, a movie where it was trying to be more serious about its rules and functions and the dream and reality separation would really get on my nerves. And in this, it didn't. I just thought it was kind of whatever. Okay. Now, some things about the the opening I wanted to mention, that opening sequence. A, from the very titles, which is you get the kind of the cool title bit where it has, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, then the nightmare part is scratched in. And then you get the big metallic Freddy's Revenge, where it sounds like it should be scored by Brad Fiedel, where it's this big metallic, you know, and it's it got this weird music cue for it. But the movie it looks like you're watching an after school special when that logo yeah. comes up. And this big shiny thing, but it's Freddy's Revenge. How? How, how is this Freddy's revenge? He is getting revenge on characters he does not know. Somebody he has no affiliation with. There is no For revenge. We don't know in this movie. Not any bit of it. No. It, it, no yeah, it's absolutely zero level of revenge. New people not connected to his predicament move yep. into the house. He uses those people to get into reality and then attacks their friends. Has <laughs> nothing to do with the parents that murdered him. Has nothing to do with the kids he was after in the first place. Bad title. He gets revenge on the guy who abused, you know, the main character. Maybe that's it. Eh. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that scene later. Freddy's Revenge Holy by Association. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other thing I wanted to mention about the bus sequence. Well, A, it's fun that there's the fun bit with Robert Englund being the person who drives the bus, but it drives me nuts because there's the card that reads and also starring Robert Englund or whatever it is, and it fades right before he does the salute. So if it had stayed on screen where he does the little two finger salute before close, it would have been so sitcom intro. Yes, like, yes. Andy Robert England and ah! <laughs> like fucking love boat shit. But the other thing is too. So Bob Shay, I think we mentioned in the previous discussion that Craven wanted the original Elm Street to just end with Nancy gets in the car, drives off, and there's the shot of the girls doing the jump rope and the one two. Freddie's coming for you. Yeah, basically she conquers her fears and has a happy ending, right? And or or you could you know read it a different way, but that you could do a positive reading of it. And Shay wanted a more overt sequel hook, which he got. But one of the things apparently Shay was pitching was that he wanted everyone to get on a bus, and then the ending reveal was Freddie driving the bus. And then so what we got was Freddie is the embodiment of this car in the finished film. But it feels like, because David Chaskin, who wrote this, worked at New Line Cinema. He worked in, I think he said he worked in their film department. Mm -hmm. So it, it absolutely feels like this was Bob Shea getting pissed at Craven and storming down to Chaskin saying, I don't give a goddamn what happens that movie. It better start with Freddie driving that fucking bus. Whereas <laughs> <laughs> like John Peters and Superman lives. You know, I want to see him fly. I don't want to see him in that suit. We got to have a giant spider in the third act. It was, I don't give a shit what happens. You could... Have Freddy go wild at a kid's pool party for all I care. Fuck it. But he's got to be driving a school bus at the beginning. One wild at a pool party. Hmm. You don't say. It's kind of funny we bring up uh, Robert Englund because he, of course, when this came around, decided he wanted more money. Which, you know, as a titular character and kind of crucial to the franchise, 
fair request. They, for half a second, were like, you know, go pound sand. And they got an extra to fill the role. They're like, it's all right. You'll have the, you'll have the makeup. We'll be good to go. And of course, they put him in it. And he just had no, did, you know, Robert England has that, like, body language, like chemistry. He just kind of like, exudes. And apparently the, the person they put in his place was just like Frankenstein clomping around. On well, that, that's him in the, the shower scene. In the shower it? scene. Yep. That's him. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah, where he's just stalking and he just keeps his hands kind of rigidly by his sides yeah. as he comes through the steam. Yep. That's the extra. Walks like the Scooby-Doo robot for a minute. Yeah. And there's no pathos. There's no life to it. It's so... Flat. Steamy. Sad. Yeah, it's... it's. There's no way the film would have survived with that as the solution. And they were like, well, all right, crap. Give him what he wants. And he got, he got his money. Yep. No, it was good to have him back. So what did everyone think of the new Freddy design for this? So they had a new makeup guy on this, Kevin Yeager, who's going to go on to do the makeup for at least the next few or be involved in them. But yeah, there's pretty different Freddy design in this. Yeah, it, it gave it a little bit more exposed bone kind of structure. I I didn't like it. I don't know why. I'm a much bigger fan of what they end up doing in New Nightmare. I mm. really like that kind of gritty, darker, realistic kind of look. But it was kind of like Uncanny Valley for me. It was a little too far off my idea of Freddy for some reason. Something about the makeup just threw me off. But didn't the new makeup artist draw more from actual burn victims than the original makeup artist? Correct and statement. So yes. it hypothetically should have been more authentic? I agree. It that just wasn't hitting for you? It just wasn't hitting for me. If it was more authentic, it still missed the character mark for me. Hmm. And I don't know why. I can't put it in words, but this is the, I think, my least favorite uh, makeup, actually, for Freddy. I mean, I don't know. I, I think this one felt more like how I remembered him than in the first one. In the first one, he hmm. felt kind of small and diminished. And that, that hmm. might just be because the this one, he's got the stripes on his sleeves and he doesn't in the first one. True. And that triggers my memory somehow. But I, I don't know. When watching him in this, this, and I, like I, I said before, I've seen the first three when I was a kid. And... This was the one that had the bits I remembered probably the most, so it might just be that. Okay. I don't really know. I didn't form a huge opinion on the makeup. I, you know, you know me and makeup and special effects is not my really my super forte. Okay, so it's it, it, it was striking to me. It was striking to me the first time I saw it, and then so when we get to three, it's going to be much closer to the first film, and then I think four is where they basically settle on was kind of the final Freddy look where they give him yep. kind of the nose from this movie and they transplant that over. So I kind of liked that they give him this much more definitive cheek structure and the much more definitive nose. But the main thing they do is they put these contacts in for his eyes and they give him these really dark eyes and give him this more of an inhuman look. And it's creepy in some scenes. There's some scenes of the way they shoot it because of the makeup. It looks like his eyes are entirely in shadow. Yeah. So that part was kind of creepy. But for the most part, it was... For Freddy's character, you know, with the kind of the big selling point of his character in a lot of ways is the fact that he talks and the fact that England has so much personality. Putting those contacts in I thought, deprived a shocking amount of personality and, and just, yes. just, just took yes. a little bit away and was distracting. And yeah, the best shot of his eye you get is not even him. It's the somebody's girlfriend. Yep. Yeah, yeah, through the yeah. mouth and the public thing, yeah. So it was jarring the contacts things, but also I watched... A lot of stuff with Kevin Yeager talking about this. If folks are interested in makeup, Kevin Yeager has a YouTube channel and he does a silicon rebuild of that, the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 design in real time. So you can see him huh. painting it and doing all that. 
But he's constantly talking about how Robert Englund's natural green eyes and his natural green eyes. And we took those away and gave him black contacts. And it just like never sunk in that England's eyes were green and it just got stuck in my head. The point that all week off has the greenest eyes in Elm Street <laughs> are haunting me tonight. <laughs> like the scars that fill his evil face. His hands are filled with knives. Where did I go wrong? <laughs> did I sleep too long? <laughs> or shall I wake in fright? God, I love you. That's all I got. <laughs> I've had greenest eyes on Elm Street in my head all goddamn week. Yeah, but now we have to play that over our closing credits instead of our normal theme song. Me singing we're done greenest with this episode. Eyes on Absolutely. Eyes on Elm Street. That's that's our new theme song for this episode. Sorry, Eric. Yeah. Uh, that's all right. You done did it. Well, well, while we're on the subject, too, I want to mention this early, too, that we might have a guest on the next movie who doesn't know us. So it occurred to me, I don't think we got our evil Midnight Bomber reference in already in the first one. <laughs> and we should probably get that out of the way now. And that the probably the prime place to have done it would have been the very first shot of him making the glove in the very first Elm Street, which I can't believe missing. She says, "Me, you need to get him, baby. Yeah, I have some hands. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm the evil Midnight Kruger. What Krugs at midnight? <laughs> Glenn's death with the blood coming up from the bed. I'm making gravy without the lumps. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the glove, they reused the glove from the first one in this one, and it showed up again in the third one, but they lost it. Oh. In the third one, yeah. It was uh, lost, but eventually found by a fan, uh, Mike Becker, at an auction in 2009. Huh. So, like, it disappeared for, like, over 20 years, and then just randomly popped up. I I'm sorry, all I can think right now is, one of these days, hot dogs, boom! <laughs> <laughs> Prime time, bitch! Um, <laughs> I figured you would really like the glove in this one, Jake, because there's a scene where when Jesse's looking in the mirror and Freddie does the Dikembe Mutombo, no, 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 with the, and it's really distinctive with the glove hand. I, I liked it better than when they try to simulate it with the fingernails from the Fu Man Chews cereal. Oh my um, god, that is in I the script. I can't believe that is it's in, in the, the script? script. It's verbatim in the script that the cereal is called Fu Man Chews. Wow, wow, that is. Just awful. My note just says Fu Man Shoes. Good lord. <laughs> <laughs> of the two fake products, that's easily the worst because the other one that shows up in this is was in the first one, which is um hold on, I wrote it down. It's the uh the sleeping pills, but Oh sta awake sta up pills. Sta up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like I in the first one that they show up the sta up and I'm like is the logo supposed to be a Y? Because that shit doesn't look like it at all. And then in this one, it just says "sta." Yeah. You know? <laughs> the one prop from the film I looked up was during the what ends up being the death sequence for the coach. There's the sign on the door about it's a fact pot hurts, <laughs> where it's the anti-marijuana smoking. <laughs> That's a real sign. I forgot the image in my notes. Nice. Pot and driving, you're out of control. <laughs> you know you did something stupid, but you don't remember what. <laughs> It's a fact. Pot hurts. <laughs> oh, God. That's better than the, the no very small letters out of town. Chicks. Sign <laughs> on his door. <laughs> the I is handwritten on chicks. It's yep. pasted yep. over. So I assume it was either no checks or no chucks. I don't know. <laughs> I, I am a 100% person. It was a no checks sign that they, they did that to. 
Because that was a big thing in the 80s, passing bad checks. Or bad chucks. I don't checks, know. kids, are uh, little pieces of paper we used to get to, instead of money. <laughs> <laughs> People used to pay groceries for them, man. If you think you got it hard now, holy shit, buddy. <laughs> I'm just going to be old this whole episode. That's just how it is. I saw this shit back in the 80s. I saw this movie. I'm just feeling ancient right now. Did you just say you're going to be old in this episode? <laughs> what have you been doing in the other ones young at heart <laughs> maybe not all of them some of them well it doesn't help that this movie looks older than the previous one just yes the, the, it, yeah. the, the film stock and whatever and just the props and whatnot it just feels like it was made like three years before elm street one yeah yep some of the props and like the clothing in this is funny too like in the second dream sequence the the first non-bus one why is he wearing scrubs <laughs> oh, it's PJs when he's going down and it's the not basement? PJs. It's it's it's, it's, it's it hospital PJs. scrubs tops, or it looks like scrubs. It's got the stitching on the shoulders like scrubs do, and the the pocket style is like scrubs. Yeah, I know a lot of people who use scrubs as PJs. Yep, but why does he? Nobody's a nurse in this family <laughs> <laughs> or a doctor. His mom might be. She's not actually he, developed as a character at all. You're allowed to buy scrubs if you're not a medical professional. You know that, right? No. Who Gulliger's character doesn't strike you as a medical professional? <laughs> Unless it's October. That just doesn't seem right. One of my biggest complaints in this movie has to be that no one actually dies in a dream. Not once. Yeah. Yeah, not, no, once. not once. Unless the whole thing is a dream. In which case, everybody does. Yeah, uh, unless there's that. Because everything else is, it's less, like we mentioned before, where it's treating the dream stuff generally secondary. And it's more just... Some weird shit seeps into reality. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. But yeah, there's no, you know, all the death sequences are just, you know, it's basically just Jesse slashing people. And you know, we get a little bit of stuff with the coach, with the jump rope and whatnot, which I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah, the the dream stuff is very secondary. And when they try and lean into it, it's in ways that don't really come across very well. So there's the parakeet, which, you know, the, <laughs> Which is obviously very comical in its execution. And again, I'm reading the script for this as written. It's, oh, this parakeet, they, you know, they pull the cloth back. This one parakeet is growing and it's deformed and it's this demonic parakeet. And it keeps growing and growing and growing until it explodes. But it's, it's so it's written very different. And then there's... They show the, the demonic parakeet that they designed. It's in the... Uh, one of the ones the, they tested, yeah. And then they decided like, yeah. not to go with it. So no, instead they just put a thing on a string... And basically went wee and clipped her in the eye. So so Jen consistently gets mad at me because every time a bird explodes in film, I laugh. Every time. <laughs> and this movie was no different. But it happens more than you think. Like like one basically explodes in Harry Potter, man. The Whomping Willow in the beginning gets one bird. Yep. We oh, saw yeah. that in the theaters. That happened. I laughed and she punched me. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know why, man. I, you know, I, I borderline a vegetarian in real life. But man, every time a bird explodes on film, I am <laughs> dying laughter. It's like kicking chickens in video games, man. It's my happy place. <laughs> You're supposed to laugh at that scene. That's right. Designed to be comedic. I think it's designed to be bad. I mean, because you hear all talk about it, it's like, yeah, this didn't work. Nope, we didn't. We knew from the start this wasn't going to work. And the the father clue is pissed. He's like, I've never gotten over that. Scratch my, my eye. eye. Fuck these guys. <laughs> Still pissed. Spent that entire uh, 
section of Never Sleep Again complaining about his eye and rubbing his eye and talking about not getting a blowjob on set. I mean, it's like, this is a very <laughs> weird documentary. Paul Gulliger is quite the character. It's one of the things that was <laughs> noted in watching the film. is like, wait a minute, the movie doesn't really give any particular reason why Freddy's going after Jesse. Just go after Clue Gulliger. He could be Crew Gulliger. <laughs> Crewliger. See, I'm just disappointed anytime Clue doesn't try to clean something up with an entire roll of paper towels. <laughs> <laughs> nice callback. Yep. So since since we're talking about him, I just want to th- so in the scene where the parents go to bed and apparently put up a sound dampening force field mm-hmm. and the kids all start, you know, acting out with the music and stuff, the song that plays is called uh, Whisper to a Scream by bobby o and uh claudia barry i don't know how to pronounce it it's claude it looks like claudia but it's a j so i'm not entirely sure what the pronunciation on that was i'm gonna just run through this and we'll get to why i think it's funny bobby orlando is the right he's an american record producer an indie record label guy who's one of the big innovators for high energy uh dancing it's essentially it's a disco song you know but he was big in like having all these dance songs with synthesized bass and piano cowbells and shit and he's had music in a lot of films, including this, but uh, Wigstock, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Dark Mirror, a few other things. So I, he's not all that interesting, but um, the song, <laughs> sorry, he's just not. But the song is called Whisper to a Scream. And, you know, it's on YouTube, it's on whatever. It'll, it'll be added to our uh, Spotify playlist for songs we talk about on the show. I love that we have that. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. But the, uh, you know, I, it was a really nice autumn day the other day, like getting towards dusk and I was driving around, listening to it like red right hand and all that shit. And I'm like, this is creeping me out. This is great. <laughs> anyway, Clue Gallagher, two years after this, was in a movie called From Whisper to a Scream. Yes, he was. So I feel like this song was, a, he was hearing this, listening to it on set and like, huh, maybe I'll do that script. I just, I got real confused because, you know, the, the lyrics are very evident in that song, you know, from Whisper to a Scream. So I looked it up and, you know, the first thing that comes up is the Elvis Costello song and I knew it wasn't that. But then it said this other, from Whisper to a Scream, and it said Clue Gooley. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? And then, you know, realized it was another movie that it was talking about. The movie came right out. I thought that was kind of fun. So there you go. That was a lot of buildup for a whole lot of nothing. But here you are. That's what we do on this podcast. No, it's a good song. I listened to all the songs on the soundtrack. That one's catchy, man. From a whisper to my, my favorite, almost my favorite music thing in this is the posters in Grady's room because he's got like stray cats and one of them is for Lee Mall. Lee Mall is the, uh, is Christopher Hamill's his real name. Lee Mall is like a anagram of that. Uh, it was in English. He was the lead singer at Kajagoogoo in the 80s. He's also the guy that did Never Ending Story for Never Ending Story. Mm. Nice. He's also one of the very, very long time openly gay singers. So I kind of like that Grady had this particular poster on his wall. Right next to a King Cobra poster, which is a heavy metal band who did the theme song for the not gay plane movie in the 80s, Iron Eagle, featuring Lou Gossett Jr. Ah, so I told you we'd get back to him. I just thought it was funny that they had the King Cobra for the, you know, they did Iron Eagle. They probably should have had something from Top Gun in this one, just based on what we're doing here. But uh, let me ask you something about Jesse's room. I couldn't identify the baseball card. I okay, no, blew no. It up I, a few I, times. I, I, I actually, I know, it, I know what top set it's from, but I couldn't tell who okay. it was. I, I took a screen grab. I was going to try that myself and didn't get around to it. So okay, cool. Thanks I was going to try. We were going to have a giveaway of that card, but I couldn't get it to figure out what it was. I and I, and that that set's expensive. So, <laughs> <laughs> so guessing you thought he had appropriate bed size. Yep, yep. I know that's been a thing in previous episodes. <laughs> appropriate bed size. Was anyone else bothered? That that his bed was 
not parallel or perpendicular, that it was at a 45 degree angle. It really I missed it's that. Like, no, I I noticed. It's, yeah, it's I did anyone have that? I'm just curious. It was like it has never occurred to me that a bed not be parallel or perpendicular to a wall before. It is right at a 45 degree angle. You got to be a real agent of chaos to have that going on. <laughs> yeah, it just I was like I don't think I've ever seen that before. <laughs> nope. No, I was too fixated. He's got a poster of Simple Minds over his bed. But it's not like a poster. It's it's a promo poster from like a record store about two of their previous albums after before their big ones. Like, so don't forget about these, like their other albums. Like, that's a weird poster for them to have just next to his, you know, ball and shaft lamp. But, uh... <laughs> Speaking of ball and shaft, <laughs> maybe we should get into the actual subtext slash text of this film. So, <laughs> go ahead. It's no surprise to anyone who has seen the film <laughs> that there's definitely some homoerotic, <laughs> homosexual undertones here. Um, I always interpreted it sort of as like Freddie being that internal sexuality trying to come out and trying to be released from being trapped within him. Which I appreciate that notion, but it makes me hate the ending so much more. <laughs> I really despise the Love Conquers All ending for this movie. It just, but it doesn't. They make you think that Love Conquers All, and then they shit on it, thereby that I mean, even though like she she so, seemingly saves everything with her love, but then she doesn't because she only <laughs> she only calms it for a moment, but then it comes back. Well, and because their love is false. Well, the phone is very false. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's cyclical. They, they either end up right back on the bus going into the, you know, heading to Beetlejuice's house. And yep. yeah, he's still essentially in the closet. And that's, Fair enough. you know, in the subtext of the subtext. Again, that word is so wrong. It's <laughs> just text. In the blatant text of the film. But I, I don't know what you're talking about subtext in a movie where a guy does a dance to Touch Me All Night Long by Fonda <laughs> and Wish in his bedroom where he, you know, pops uh, cork halfway through. <laughs> I mean, one of the best scenes actually is where Jesse and Freddie uh, talk for the first time. And Freddie basically is just like caressing his face with the glove. It's It's very much a seduction. Yeah, before I get into like a lot of the other elements about what the creative team involved may or may not have intended, I, I think one thing it's even by his own admission, Robin Englund's like, I zeroed right the fuck in on that psychosexual subtext it, because he did that on the first one too. Yep. I mean, like we, we talked about in our review, there's a highly psychosexual element to Freddy Krueger and his very nature in a lot of ways. But they mentioned like there was the bit where he's running his finger around, you know, Jesse's face and whatnot which is in the finished film but then they mentioned the bit where he went to put the blade in jesse's mouth mm -hmm. and and one of the crew members ran up and basically told jesse don't artist. let him do that yep yep. Yeah, the makeup artist said don't let him do that it looks like you're blowing <laughs> <laughs> or something along those lines no pretty much exactly that and that's because with, with so many of the other choices in this movie it's <laughs> yep. it, it's it, it's one of the things that makes this movie so fascinating as far as what was intended and what was not because for some of the other choices, you would think that choice of putting using the blade as a as a phallus is a no brainer. Right. Yeah. But they take it out. And here's another reason I mentioned that, which is the original ending of the movie as written in the script. So obviously one of the kind of phallic things is there's the makeout sequence with Jesse and Lisa in the cabana 
where he loves the shit out of her sternum. He's just all he's, about. What is that maneuver? <laughs> he grabs both boobs and then locks onto her sternum like he's trying to suck an alien out of her. It's the weirdest fucking thing. Yeah, he's just sweet, sweet love to the sternum. Like I was awkward in high school, but holy fuck! Like... <laughs> but there's the bit at the end of that. The payoff is you know there's the huge, extremely long tongue that comes out, mm-hmm. and then he runs off. That part makes me gag. It's just. It just seems so awful to have... (laughs) 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 Nothing in the first movie got to you, but the tongue in this one did. Yep. (laughs) Not even the tongue, knowing he had that prop in his mouth. Like, I would gag in one second. Oh, wait till you get the anecdote about uh, Freddy Krueger kissing somebody in four. You're going to be so grossed out when you get to that part and never sleep again. So, the ending of the film in the finished film is Jesse gets on the bus. He's talking to Lisa carries behind him. They have the dialogue exchange and Jesse gets uneasy because it's all a parallel to the opening with them on the bus. He thinks the dream's about to repeat and bus makes its plan stop. And then Carrie has the line. It's all over. And Freddie's arm juts out of her chest. And there's the shot of the bus driving into the desert, which is apparently a dude under her at his hand up her shirt. She didn't particularly care for that special effect. Nope. So here's how that ending sequence is written. I don't know why I started with this dialogue bit, but it's here. Jesse, hi. Lisa, hi. Lisa (laughs) chuckles. Jesse, what's so funny? Lisa, we must look like a couple of escapees from a veteran's hospital. And there's that line because in the finished film, Jesse has like casts on both arms or he's got like gauze in the script. Like one arm is in a cast and Lisa's also got bandages on her shoulder from where she gets cut. So that's where that line comes from. So Jesse smiles and shakes his head. Jesse. I can't believe we actually... Lisa puts a finger to her mouth to cut him off. No need to tell about unpleasant things. Jesse smiles again. She's right. He kisses her. Jesse moves his head away from hers for the big kiss. Lisa's eyes are closed, ready to receive it. She opens her eyes. They are pupilless, blood-streaked, demonic. With an evil roar, a huge serpent tongue flicks out of her mouth and attacks Jesse, who screams. Exterior desert landscape day. The bus winds near the top end of third, all of its flashers firing wildly. It races through the desert in a cloud of dust. Hmm. Now, I'm sure there were like practical effects reasons not to do that. But again, for a lot of the other imagery (laughs) that you have (laughs) to not go with that ending is like, well, again, it's it's peculiar why some of the choices were made looking at the script portion. Mm -hmm. Well, because that makes no sense. Now, the spent dork. Next to his bed in the morning. That one makes sense. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. I, I'd almost feel like they started off strong and they were just filming. And as they got closer to the end, they were like, okay, well, we're getting low on budget. We're getting low on time. Let's just cut corners. Would be my guess. Grady's death, he talks about that a little bit. He says, you know, that we were just so hurried. He didn't get a big, cool special effect. He was just like, you know, almost off camera. He was so disappointed. This is a little thing, but why does Jesse not go down for Ron's death? Because he's the only one in the room. Ron's parents know he's there, I'm pretty sure. I would hope so. And yet, at the end, he's just do-do-do going to school. And everything's <laughs> fine. Like, why is he not in jail for murder? No idea. That's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> he confesses to her that he killed the coach. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like Jesse cleans up when he goes to Lisa's. Because when he shows up, he is covered in grady's blood yep yep well but also you know the ending is what we get is a dream so i mean he could be in his prison cell dreaming that that's true to be fair the, the last time we see him awake is when they're hugging fair. at the refinery so yeah he could easily be in jail 
Mm. Yeah, it depends on how you want to read the the ending. In terms of the effect stuff, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff like I mean, obviously you expect the script to be more ambitious than the finished film. Particularly, they're like, we got to turn this thing out in a in a hurry. But like one of the things they mention in Never Sleep Again, which is they talk about the sequence where Freddy emerges from Jesse and Grady's bedroom, and they're like, oh, all the script said was. Freddie emerges from Jesse. I admit, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a great special effect. Yeah, it's really well done. It's it's a pretty good effect, but that's not quite accurate in terms of that's the script doesn't say anything. Here's how that sequence is written: four steel razor knives tear out from within the tips of Jesse's fingers like long, bloody switchblades. Grady stands by helplessly as Jesse rides, and then it is like some crazed beast in Jesse's gut tearing its way out of his skin, like someone stepping through a thick latex film. As his skin peels away. Thousands of capillaries pull apart, spraying blood everywhere in a fine, almost powdery mist. The transformation is almost complete when Fred Krueger's body steps out of the red cloud. All that is left of Jesse is his screaming face, plastered like a grisly rubber mask over Freddy's own disfigured features. Nice. Now, clearly, they did not have the fiscal means to accomplish that. But that's not a case of, oh, well, all it said is that, no, it's pretty specific how it was supposed to be visualized. It just couldn't do it. Hmm. So blood jizz sprays everywhere and the transition gets completed? Yeah, I don't think there's anything to read into that. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's that's a dream sequence and it's very wet. (laughs) You know, this is after he abandoned his girlfriend's sternum to go lie on top of his best friend. I mean, you know. I... <laughs> yeah, the infamous and you want to sleep with me exchange. Yeah, which, yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's somebody yep. inside me. <laughs> he wants to get out and all he wants to do is be with you. <laughs> well, he's lying to Lisa, too, after that, when he's telling Lisa he killed. He's like, you know, Freddie's coming and he wants to take me again. And it's just a very. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Deliberate phrasing. I, you talk about the budget, I, I you know, I think a lot of the choices with the special effects and things like that were really absolutely just down to budget. Like this, yep, this is a rarity in movies where the character wears the same shirt in multiple scenes, but not consecutive scenes. Yeah, they're, they're using the same clothes over different days. It's like, they, what the hell? And it's that yellow number with the crosses all over it, which is probably intentional. Who the hell knows? But boy, is that an ugly ass shirt. <laughs> And the first couple of times you see him and he's got it, he's got it buttoned all the way up, but at least in the bird exploding scene, he's got it, you know, unbuttoned a little bit. Like, come on, buddy, calm down. One of the things, once you hit about the halfway point of the script, the sequences are very much jumbled up in terms of their order and the, the sequence in which they play out. So I think some of that wardrobe stuff might be chalked up to them in editing, mm. shuffling stuff around. Very likely. Because one of those... There's a sequence that was excised that I want to mention real quick. It's part of a series of things that were excised. But so there's the sequence we get where Lisa and Jesse go to the abandoned power plant. And in the finished film, it's after the coach is dead. In the script, it's before. Okay. It originally, there's a, a bit of dialogue here. It's actually immediately after one of the times Jesse and Grady are getting punished by the coach. Oh, yeah, lying in the field in the prone bone position. Not even doing push-ups. <laughs> Both of those guys should have killer abs. At the rate they have to do planks in this, they should have banging abs. So here's how that was originally written. So exterior school parking lot, day. Lisa is leaning on the car, waiting with a stack of books at her side. She looks up as Jesse approaches. Jesse, sorry, Schneider did it to me again. Lisa, I just got here myself. Went to the public library. 
proudly. Cut four classes. He opens the door for her. She picks up the books and climbs in. Jesse runs around to the other side and slides in beside her. Jesse, indicating the books. What's all this? Lisa. Research. She kisses him. Hi. An intriguing wink. Come on, let's go for a ride. Exterior highway day. The blue falcon rolls down the highway. Inside, Jesse is driving as Lisa restacks some of the books on her lap and begins leafing through one. Lisa. I convinced you had a genuine psychic vision. Jesse looks over at her inquisitively. Lisa. At first I wasn't sure because you said that you never had anything like last night happen before, but I found out that most people have the potential for tuning into, quote, the other world and never do. It has something to do with the environment, like they have to be in a place that's sending signals. Jesse. Like a haunted house, right? I don't believe in ghosts. Lisa. You don't have to. You just have to believe in energy. She shifts in her seat to face him. Lisa. Intensely. Look, you've got electricity in your body, right? Jesse. Yeah, I know. Synapses, neurons. Lisa. And heat and chemical reactions. Where does it all go when you die? Jesse. I don't know. Into the air, I suppose. Lisa. Pointing up ahead. Make a left at this corner. Jesse turns at the intersection. Lisa. What about essential energy, the soul? Does that go into the air too? Do you think there's a good energy and a bad energy? Jesse, confused. I don't know. A beat. Where are we going? Lisa smiles mysteriously. It's a surprise. And then we get them pulling up to the factory like we get in the finished film. I mentioned that sequence for a few reasons. One is... It's basically her describing the force? Yes. Well, it's also kind of particularly apt because we just did an episode on Midnight Mass and her talking about what happens when you die and all this stuff with, oh, electrons, neurons. So I was like, oh, that's kind of apt. But that whole running thread about her and her fascination with energy and the soul being electricity, basically, or this other world force, that's kind of a running thing. And it's kind of a running thing, again, to explain Freddy. That's something that's much more pronounced in the script. It keeps coming back a little bit. One of the other reasons I wanted to mention it is there is the line where she says, make a left at this corner. And in the script, it says, Jesse turns at the intersection. They're having a very different dialogue exchange in the finished film. It's it's all ADR. And it's mm-hmm. after Jesse has killed the coach. So he's very disturbed. So he's very annoyed. And in the finished film, he says, where am I supposed to be driving or something like that? And she says, well, make this left. He proceeds to go straight. <laughs> it's a curve. There's no intersection. The road curves to the left. Make this left. He has no choice. It curves (laughs) to the left. Why would you keep the line? Make the left when there's no left. There's no option. So I was flipping out about that watching the movie. I was like, why'd you have that 80-yard line? There's no turn. You went out of your way to add this for no reason. And then I got to that bit in the script, and it was like, of course it made sense in the script. There was an intersection. (laughs) (laughs) They're low on budget. They couldn't afford an intersection. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So her talking about energy and that, maybe that explains the two lightning strikes. Mm. Yeah. There's the lightning strike on the dishes, which is in the script explicitly and is otherwise entirely peculiar. And look, every time lightning strikes my dishes, I immediately proceed to a gay bar with no shoes on. I mean, that's... <laughs> Like maybe it's because I grew up in the '80s and it's just what you did, but it's not just the uh, the lightning though either. Like the flames at the party like flare up, the pool starts boiling. You know, there's this constant heat and energy being given off by his presence as he approaches. Like anywhere Freddy is, it's flaming. No, nope. yeah, which is an element of the film. <clears throat> I lo- the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then the other lightning strike is in the beginning when they're on the bus. 
Yeah. It's the last thing the lightning. And I, I always thought that was weird. And then when it hits the things and he's just like, huh, time to go to a bar barefoot. It's just very weird. Yeah. The dish one is incredibly peculiar in the finished film. So yeah, that gives a lot more context to what the thought was. Uh, while we're on the subject, here's how the bar is written. <laughs> Exterior Don's place night, a seedy tavern on a badly lit corner. Jesse steps into frame. He stares at the place before stepping up to the door. Interior Don's place night, the toughest looking bar in the entire city. The place is packed with prostitutes, pimps, traveling salesmen, a couple of transvestites, and a generous delegation of the leather and chain contingency. This is how it's written verbatim in the script. Jesse enters and crosses to the bar amid a few stairs. He sits on a stool. The bartender draws a cold beer and presents it to Jesse. As the bartender turns away, Jesse reaches for the glass. A hand slaps down on his wrist and holds it tightly. He looks up. Coach Snyder is standing over him. He's wearing a muscle shirt a gold chain around his neck, and he has a sick grin on his face. Wow. So it specifically says that he's wearing a muscle shirt. Wow. Which they turn in the finished film into a you know leather, leather vest. Vaguely SM vest. Yeah. Yeah. Which it, a lot of other folks at the bar have too. So again, in terms of choices that were made, yeah. But why you make some and not others is perplexing to me. <laughs> and who gives you a glass with a beer bottle in a bar? Come on. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even have to ask for it in the script. The bartender just gives it to him. Here you go. How are you okay with full leather bar, but not, you know, knife in the mouth? You know? Yeah, it's... Well, the, the knife in the mouth thing wasn't, like, that was the makeup artist was like, don't fucking do this, because everybody will think you're... Like, he was... That makeup artist was trying to protect... Yes, yeah. True. ...the actor in that situation. Yeah, but your point still absolutely stands. Like again, you spent Dork on the bedside and him, you know, all the other stuff. But that you don't like. And, and yeah, the makeup guy was trying to protect him, and then you look at the rest of the movie. Yeah, and it's but again, it's unless unless they shot that first, because again, it's trying to figure out like whose intent was what from the creative side is so baffling. Because again, like everyone says, how could you not know? All these folks on the creative side who insist, I had no idea, and it's how could you not know? I was going to say, in the Scream Queen documentary, the director's talking about, his defense about the bar was that he scouted it during the daytime and he had no idea that it was a gay bar. Yeah. And I'm sitting there watching it thinking, yeah, but you approved wardrobe later. Like, you <laughs> knew what you were doing when you said okay to him showing up in all the leather gear. like. Yeah. Who cares when you scouted the bar, you still said okay to stuff later down the line that was so obvious. Yep. Very much yeah, so. Yeah, he's probably full of shit. But then again, and this isn't really in a defense, but it's the only explanation I can have for it, you know, on the off chance he's serious is in Scream Queen and also in uh, Never Sleep Again. He just comes off as a doofus. Oh my yeah. god. Like he just does not seem like he is clinically aware of his surroundings, even no. in those <laughs> documentaries. <laughs> And I, you know, maybe he's full of shit. Who knows? But I could almost buy it from him. Clearly the writer knew what was going on. Yeah. So, yeah. From, so from the writer perspective, to kind of start with him and work out. And I, I, you know, I feel bad kind of speculating a lot of this stuff. Because, again, who knows? And people's stories have changed and whatnot. But there's, there's the part of Scream Queen where they cite a particular interview that David Chaskin gave. And I found the interview. They show it on screen at one point and they read bits of it, but it was with a website called Bloody Good Horror. And so uh, from 2007, or at least that's when this particular interview was posted to the site. And 
The interviewer asked, the film has become sort of famous among horror fans for having homoerotic undertones. Are you aware of that? And was that something you had intended? Or was it something that happened on the directorial level? Jaskin's response, yes, there was certainly some intentional subtext, but it was intended to play homophobic rather than homoerotic. I thought about the demographics for these type of films, parentheses, young heterosexual males, and tried to imagine what kind of things would truly frighten them to the core and scary dreams that make them even momentarily question their own sexuality seemed like a slam dunk to me. If you really wanted to have fun, one might argue that the entire movie is a metaphor. Jesse is, in the end, finally able to control the monster inside him, parentheses, his latent homosexuality, with the love of a good woman. Maybe they should show this film at one of those evangelical deprogramming sessions where they try to, quote, fix gay people into regular Americans. Worth noting that line I just read, Chaskin does say in, in Scream Queen that he intended that as a joke. But uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that reads real funny. Yeah, yeah. To say what he what he tried to say later. So then last thing he says. So that said, there were certain choices that were made, e.g. casting, uh. that I think pushed the subtext to a higher level and stripped away whatever subtlety there may have been. To this day, Jack Shoulder says he read no such subtext into the script. It <laughs> must have been by osmosis. At any rate, he should have seen it coming. When we opened in New York, we got a rave review in The Advocate. He just 100% threw the blame on Patton. Um, on Patton. Yeah. It's so not okay. And that's the crux of the documentary yeah. that we've yes. referenced a couple of times called Scream Queen, which is about Mark Patton's you know, career and what this movie did to it and essentially his recovery and his advocacy and you know his life uh, it's available on shutter in fact i think it's a shutter exclusive yes very worth the watch it's absolutely it's yeah. very very good it's it's a good documentary uh mark patton seems like a wonderful dude who had to spend a lot of his life angry at things that he probably shouldn't have had to be angry about I, I would give it a watch if you're listening to this. It's it's definitely worth it. Worth your time. It's not going to make you like Chaskin too much, even nope. with the, the resolution at the end. Uh, that resolution yeah. was so weak. I mean, I'm glad Mark Patton got some... Closure? Clo- yeah, closure from the whole situation. But like, I Chaskin's have... apology was not... An apology? No. No. Yeah, like, one of the things that Patton takes issue with, which has been something that... I was aware of going into the film, which was that basically this is so dicey. Cause again, I hate ascribing, you know, potential motivations to people when everyone has different story, you know, their stories have changed over years. But mm. if I were to, to my belief coming off of reading the script was what I just read from Chaskin, aside from the casting bit where he completely throws Patton under the bus. But up until then, my read of the script was that's what he meant. I think the intent was huh. for there to be subtext that was homophobic rather than homoerotic. And the reason for that is, again, there's a lot more in the finished film that isn't there in the script. But also that sequence I read between Jesse and Lisa in the script before they go to the power plant, that's one of like four scenes between Jesse and Lisa that were cut. Huh. There was a lot more of their relationship that was cut. A hmm. uh, lot more dialogue exchanges. And you can make the argument that it was all superfluous and it was cut for pacing reasons. Mm-hmm. But in reading it, it's like when you trim that stuff out, you then put Jesse's relationship with Grady more to the forefront yep. just by virtue of screen time. Huh. So it 
my read on the script was there was intended to be a an element of it that played on homophobia and then and during the production standpoint people on the production end decided to really lean into it you know and then you know mark Patton was cast and whatnot and it's horrible that all this was tossed on Patton. yep and and what he's had to go through because again it's like was it an element of the script absolutely but it feels in like it's part the script and then a lot of it were decisions that were made in the adaptation process and the filming process. Like a lot of the changes are by Patton makes reference to stuff being rewritten throughout the filming. And, and based on the draft of the script I had, it's not that stuff was rewritten so much as it was just omitted. Hmm. Hmm. But it makes a big difference. It does. So basically your, your speculation is that there was a lot of homophobia in the script and then someone in the production endeavor decided to take it in a different direction. And they're never going to own up to having done that. And so there's just endless speculation about the writer and Patton. And... Yeah. So I'll give you another, a small example. Everyone makes a big point about Mark Patton's scream and saying he has a very feminine scream. This comes up repeatedly in Never Sleep Again and Scream Queen. Yeah. You know, it didn't even occur to me the first time I watched it. And I mean, like when I rewatched it, that he screamed like a woman his scream is one of the best parts of the film it's awesome yeah he has a fantastic and then, scream. you know my perception changed the second time through you know after watching all the stuff and reading all the stuff about it but the first time through i didn't even notice i did i didn't make anything of it i thought it was interesting but i noticed yeah so in the scene where he kills the coach you mean the scene after he flings every ball he can find at him <laughs> yep <laughs> it's it's interesting that you mentioned that that the order of things is switched because i one of the notes i had was that that's the first death in this film mm-hmm. and it comes way into this film for yeah. a slasher film especially in the 80s yeah it's 35 minutes almost 40 minutes in it's almost half the runtime yeah which was just a surprise for this and now that knowing stuff was in a different order that makes a little bit more sense as written Jesse looks, he sees, you know, the coach is dead. He looks at his hand. He's got the glove. He screams. And then he falls to his knees and he basically says, no, 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 this can't be happening. And looks, he goes, oh, no, no, this can't be happening. And he gets up and he leaves. So don't know if they filmed that or not. There is a deliberate choice made to edit on that screen. Mm-hmm. So if that was the perception of the people making the movie, then again, that seems like an overt choice. I'm just curious if it was the director or the editor. Yeah, uh, I I can only speculate. My my guess would be Cheskin says it himself during the Scream Queen doc when when Patton is is talking to him about, you know, Patton says, you know, no one told me to try playing it a little differently. And Cheskin says, you know, wasn't that Jack's job? And to that part, yeah, I I think Patton made choices and and people on the production then decided to embellish them in the editing process. Hmm. That's my read. So, but, you know, I'm, I'm not not absolving Chaskin because I think what Chaskin did was he wrote something that was he was trying to use homophobia as a scare element. And then in recent years where it's become, you know, the, the movie's taken on a new dimension and has gained a following has kind of pivoted and has, has done. The, oh, yes, this was this was absolutely what I intend, you know, so mm-hmm. I I think you're right. It's probably a combination of a lot of elements that created this movie and in the way it is i you know it's easy to blame chaskin if for no other reason that he reminds me of dc parlov from brooklyn 99 who's a villain in that show but <laughs> in the documentary the director spends a lot of time trying to convince 
Mark Patton to let it go. Yep. Just let yeah. it go. Let it go. Don't hang uh-huh. on to it. Just let it go. And he's never really trying to say, you know, solve the problem or, you know, confront Chaskin or anything. He's just let it go. Let it go. That's what I told him. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Maybe Chaskin isn't the only villain in that particular story. He does not come across as likable. No. Oh. He's shady. He just comes off as, a, like I mentioned before, a doofus to me. But in that particular thing, in light of what Eric's talking about, it seems a little shadier now than it did when I watched it originally. Yeah. Respect. Yeah. But, it, and, but again, even that is so peculiar because for that to be his intent would, would imply a degree of affinity for the material or care for the finished product that I don't think it, the, the, movie, <laughs> yeah. the movie feels so apathetic in its execution. Yes. It feels like it, for most takes, it feels like, yeah, whatever, fuck it, roll camera. And they just went, you know, there, there's very little flair to it. Not to say there's none, but again, if you watch alone in the dark and then watch this, it's decidedly feels like a less involved production. So again, it's you watch the finished film and it's like, well, it feels like he didn't care, but he had to give some semblance if there was the thought involved to do this approach to the material. And so, yeah, it's I, I find this movie endlessly fascinating in trying to piece again, again because some no one will really admit, oh, no, I didn't know or whatever. And uh, this is wild speculation, but maybe the fact that he wasn't into the production was the problem. And at some point he decided to gay it up just to kill the boredom. Possible. Like to see how much he could squeeze in and get away with. Yeah. Just to sort of get through the whole thing in a fun way. He's the kind of guy I could see easily doing something like that. Who knows? I I mean, again, that we're never going to know. Nobody's no, ever going to no. pass up. But what we do know is is it essentially destroyed Mark Patton's career. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He fell off the radar for like 30 years, went down to Mexico. Yep. And it wasn't until the uh, the interview in... Never Sleep Again, where they found him with a private detective. Yep. yep. That he kind of came back out on the scene. And, and again, if you watch Scream Queen, he's he's embraced it a lot, like the film. And it and it looks like it's doing wonders for him and, and his advocacy uh, on behalf of AIDS education and awareness yeah. uh, seems to be a good positive net result from a lot of the, the trauma and the problems he had. You know, not saying he should have gone through it, but at least it's turned into something good. Good. Yeah, it was interesting. Like, you know, they found him and they brought him back for the Never Sleep Again interview. And he just like discovered that, oh, wait, I'm famous. <laughs> this all took off and like people care about my performance and I'm getting shown in theaters specifically for my involvement and representation. It was fascinating stuff. And what did you say about his uh, charity work he's been doing with this now? Oh, he donates most of his um, convention fees to either AIDS advocacy groups or LGBTQIA youth groups like Trevor Project and stuff. Okay. So like he just like came back, discovered that, you know, he has this this following, this niche, and he's using it for just good. And oh my God. Yeah. I love good. this guy. Good for him. On the subject of representation, like when I, I saw this movie, you said years and years ago when, when Nick gave me the box set and, and I was watching it for the first time and I, I remember seeing the coach Played by the guy from Dick's Town, obviously. Uh, he, oh, the, scare you? Scared me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Total recall for that. Dick's Town. Um, <laughs> and thinking, I was like, well, maybe in the time period, this was. I mean, obviously, it's not great representation in terms of having everyone be, you know, this very villainous 
character with this you know homophobic presentation. I said, but maybe just having a a coach like that was, I guess, a step forward, even if the the intent wasn't great. But then, I mean, that was years ago when I first saw this. I was like, maybe that's that's part of why the movie's seen as progressive. But then recently, I watched Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Oh God, <laughs> which has a plot with a basketball coach in that who is gay. It is far more nuanced than this. And that movie's from 1981. And it's a significant plot element in the movie because there's a series of murders. And one of the elements about that movie that's fascinating is the cop and it's played by Bo Svensson. And in most movies where there's murders, you know, the cop is the heroic character. Bo Svensson plays this big homophobe who immediately assumes the coach did it because he's gay. And he tells him, you better get out of town. And he goes to a scene where he goes to the protagonist's kid and he said, you know, your coach is gay, right? And the kid's like, yeah. And? <laughs> and, <laughs> huh, and, and so you have this element and that character, the coach, is becomes pretty important in the climax. And that's from 1981. Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. this is in 85. But I mentioned that it's hard not to think of that movie because that guy is in this movie. The actor, Steve Easton, is the cop who has dialogue when he drops Jesse off at home. Uh, I was like, holy shit, it's the basketball coach from Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that a glitch in my Amazon account is absolutely going to lead to us doing this movie yep. on this podcast. Also, that scene where the cops drop off their naked son in the rain. Yeah. You know, at two o'clock in the morning, they're like, huh? And he's like, I'm going to bed. And they're like, okay. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Nope. I would be a little bit more concerned about my naked kid coming home in the middle of the night. It'd be a two-hour conversation. <laughs> I'd already be wondering why my dishes are electrified. It'd just be a weird night overall. Yeah. I, you know. I like the dad has like two lines. He's like, what are you taking and who's giving it to you? <laughs> and that's it. That's it. I mean, that was 90% of 80s parenting. Fair. <laughs> Can confirm. <laughs> there's a line that's cut during, because there's like six sequences in this film with Jesse coming down for breakfast. Like they show like every breakfast is shown in this movie. And there's a line that's cut from one of them where his mom's like, how you doing, Jesse? He's like, yeah, fine. And he leaves. And there's an excise line where Clue's like, he's definitely on something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a hell of a movie. Yeah, I, like I said, I enjoyed it. I like when I watched it as a kid, I didn't pick up on any of this. I mean, I was in middle school. Same. So if he was trying to make, you know, homophobia scare me as a kid, I was much more scared of knives. So that part <laughs> already worked. You know, and I, I like I have very vivid memories of the scene where he jumps out, you know, in the pool area and going after people and that scaring the shit out of me. Yes. That was originally supposed to be concrete that he busts out of. In the, in the finished film, it's wooden floorboards, but it was solid fucking concrete that erupts and he busts out. Oh, that'd been nice. Kool-Aid man stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess he, even back then I had anxiety about breaking punch bowls. So, I mean, who knows? <laughs> I will say one of my random things about that scene I also really love is there's the sequence where Lisa's dad has the shotgun and he opens fire on Freddy and it cuts to the reaction shot of Freddy. And what it's supposed to be is, again, this tug of war between Jesse and Freddy where he sees Lisa and he's kind of transfixed and you're just seeing Freddy's transfixed expression. But it looks like he's just incredulous that this motherfucker shot at him. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you know who I am? My favorite part of that whole scene is the kid trying to mediate, you know, the guy running around with knives on his hand. Like, Nobody's going to hurt you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the fuck are you yeah, doing? Help funny? yourself, fucker. And then there's a knife. That's verbatim. This is where, to be fair, as much as I've joked about Jake and appropriate bed sizes, I was bothered by appropriate 
grill size. That grill was far too small yes. to efficiently cook hot dogs and cheeseburgers in a time efficient manner for the number of guests <laughs> that were at that party. <laughs> far too small. You know what bugged me about the grill is that the you know the boys are lining up to get burgers off of it, but if you look to the right on the table, there's a pile of burgers. Yeah. <laughs> and like not one teenager is talking to that dad on purpose when they can just get a hamburger off the table. Not yeah, gonna yep. happen. Yep. Joker looking motherfucker. <laughs> So, I mean, I like I said, I really like this movie by itself. And I, I like what they did with it in and of itself. I don't think it is a strong contender for the franchise in any way. I think it really is its own beast. That being said, I like Freddy. So it was a fun watch. And I was happy I saw it. I, like we, we established earlier, I, I liked it much as Eric predicted. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was it was an interesting film. There's a lot of stuff to kind of think about when you're watching it whether it's the strongest movie of all time uh, but i i did like it more than the first one it just for whatever reason it just worked for me better and you know i i'm looking real i'm very much looking forward to watching dream Warriors because i remember that being my favorite as a kid i just don't remember anything about it other than the uh lady getting stabbed with the hypodermic needles because boy was everybody scared of hypodermic needles in the 80s yep amen <laughs> The dream warrior. I feel like we haven't spent enough time talking about the exploding bird. I, I mean, <laughs> I know we touched on it, but <laughs> and I, I understand how it happened at all. Like, I get why it was in the script, and I get why they filmed it. I do not understand how anybody watched that after the fact and said, "Yeah, we should leave this in." <laughs> like, I just, <laughs> who thought that was a good idea? It's like that for a lot of effects too, like the the dogs outside the the power plant in the final sequence, yeah, wh which have the the faces on them. Which again, there's like I, yeah, the intent uh, there is, is obvious to have this surreal thing, but it's th the execution of it just makes you go, wait, really? That's yeah. <laughs> again, it's much easier to think that Jack Shoulders' response was just good enough. Fuck it, roll. <laughs> 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 Well, doesn't the FX guy in one of the documentaries say, you know, I was more focused on aliens, so they just got half-assed work for this? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which does, in fact, explain a lot. And in the movie's defense, I don't know for sure what the if there's like an official budget, but I watched an interview with Rachel Talalay. Uh, it was a producer on all of them except five, and, and then she would direct the sixth one. But she kind of rattles off the top of her head budget versus box office for all of them. And according to her, she said the budget for Nightmare on Elm Street 1 was $1.8 million, and the budget for Nightmare 2 was $2.2 million. So they didn't have, like, like, double the budget of the first one. You know, after this, when we go to Nightmare 3, according to Rachel, that one has a budget of 4.5. So double this one. Yeah, it shows. So it's not like they had a shitload more money on this one. But even with those in those parameters, again, yeah, you see that birth, it's like, really? Okay. <laughs> Just really? <laughs> Again, it, it lends credence to the director gave zero shits because otherwise, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> I don't know. It, what it feels like most to me. I, actually, let me address the bird thing first. The bird exploding in this, again, this is one of my favorite things in movies. And this one's up there with like it happening in Shrek, but not quite as high as the, it happening in How High. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's easily the the goofiest scene oh, in the film so cheesy yes it's so random it feels like a like some sort of you know all of a sudden we're in a trauma film for a yeah. few seconds you know like you know well, it's not, not too that far cheesy. 
not too far <laughs> after that, there's the Sam Raimi shot coming up from the basement. And I'm like, hey, this yeah. is just a lot of stuff in this. But it really just feels like they, you know, the first one was a much bigger hit than they thought. It, it essentially made New Line Cinema. And they're like, oh, shit. And they're like, well, we got to crap out a sequel and we got to do it fast. Yep. And they, they somehow, you know, it's like one of my favorite things is that Breakin' and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo came out in the same year. Yep. This was very close to being within 365 days of each other. Mm-hmm. The release of one and this. So, but it, I, I just feel like they decided to do that and they just went with the always say yes kind of way of, of doing things. You know, whatever comes up, just do it. Just yep. say yes. <laughs> Roll with it. Next scene. And somehow lucked into what is essentially, I mean, even if you like it or hate it, it is a fascinating goddamn film. Yeah. And yep. it, it has had huge reverberations in horror and you know various communities around horror since whether it's by accident or on purpose it did become a a pretty big deal and you know it certainly it it did like a you know a ton of money in the box office and and you know it could have flopped completely and you wouldn't even have dream warriors that's right so it's it's a very consequential film that feels entirely consequential by accident it's actually, they made very little money off the first one. They needed this one to make the money. <laughs> yeah, because they had a co-financer on the first one right. that took everything. Yep. Yeah. According to that same interview with Rachel, she said the box office on this one was 22, and then the box office on the first one was 18. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it was more profitable than the first one. Now, so one of the things you just said that, if we didn't say it earlier, that I wanted to mention, which was whatever the intent was of the writer, director, you know, whoever and whatever went into making this in terms of whether or not it was charitable intent or not. At the end of the day, this movie means a lot to a lot of people. And no matter what the creator's intent was, if there are people who are taking positive things away from this movie and it means a lot to them, then great. That's wonderful. You know? Amen. But yeah, so for my take on the film, like I said, I'm, I, I don't think the film is terrible. I think it, generally feels apathetically made for the most part but is say by some some interesting touches and a great lead performance by mark Patton. and robert england is still fun as freddy krueger yes yes the other guy is freddy krueger and it's uh, not so much though (laughs) yeah not so much so again i'm pretty middle of the road on it i'm curious to see where it'll land in the franchise overall as we go through but yeah and again for Folks who, you know, this movie means a lot to you, it, then great. That, that is a truly great thing. What'd you think, Hannah? I enjoyed it, and I thought it was fascinating. I don't think it was good, <laughs> but but I had a lot of fun watching it. Yay! Yeah, that's pretty much it. No, I'm just glad you had fun watching it. It was fun watching with you. Oh? Absolutely. Your reactions are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, speaking of reactions, I can say that I'm I'm more glad that we did this particular film than most almost any other film we've done. Because normally Eric plays referee between Nick and I and tries to be very even handed. And this one, I actually made him take off his headphones, <laughs> knock over his mic, <laughs> mic and drop. get out of his chair with my bullshit. And that feels like a win. <laughs> like Eric finally ran out of patience with my horse shit. And it's just... <laughs> He did it. He finally did it. I'm curious to see how the mic did. That was obviously theatrics, but yeah, it was. <laughs> if anybody out there is keeping a, a a power rankings per episode of, uh, you know, the three hosts on this, and I hope they are because I like to think we're famous. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm declaring victory on this segment. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how you do in the next uh, you one. You know, the one dude, Eric, is pretty even keeled until you get to episode 19. And he goes full blow me to Bermuda from <laughs> Sword in the Stone. <laughs> blow me to Bermuda! <laughs> 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 but Hannah, I'm glad you had a good time watching it, and I hope you had a good time chatting with us because this was a blast. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Hannah. Happy to be here. Can't wait to have you back. Yay! <laughs> Sounds like from Malignant Two. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear Lord. <laughs> hey everyone, Eric here in post production land. Hope you've enjoyed our discussion of the first two Nightmare on Elm Street movies. If you didn't see our post on social media, our intent was to release episode 19 as a single episode covering the first four movies in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. But when we got everything edited together, the total audio was just a little bit over what our podcast platform supports for a single episode. So we are splitting it into two. We're going to end part one here with our review of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge. This is going to be going up on Friday, December the 17th. Then a few days later on Monday, December the 20th. The second half of this episode will be going up, and that will be covering Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, and we have very special guests joining us for both of those movies, so we definitely hope you check that out because we're really, really happy with how those reviews turned out. But we also hope you enjoyed our discussion of the first two movies in the series, and hope you enjoy part two of the episode shortly.